welcome back to Worthy. We are discussing Gone with the Wind. So we recently, in part one, broke down kind of bringing Technicolor back into film. We then kind of broke down the cast and the kind of crew that helped to, to make and really perfect Gone with the Wind to be the classic iconic film that it is. And then we kind of broke down the first half of the movie. Since this is almost a four-hour movie, we thought it was best to break it in two parts. And we're now going to dive right in to the second half of Gone with the Wind. So probably the best place to start uh, with starting out the second half of the film is actually to talk about some of the behind the scenes. And so we talked about in the first half how there have been multiple directors. So at this point, at least in the second half of the film, is mostly Victor Fleming. Um, Victor Fleming, he he has like this like exhaustion period and he sort of... I, I, I Supposedly he fainted. I don't, I don't know like what really happened, but he left production for almost a month uh, and a little bit of background to that Victor Fleming had just finished his part on the production of Wizard of Oz so you had the Wizard of Oz and Gone with the Wind happening at the same time Gone, uh, Wizard of Oz had its own director issues director carousel George Cooker was one of the people who kind of helped to work on the visual style of it but Fleming he was the main director in Wizard of Oz becomes the main director of Gone with the Wind he stops for like a month and Sam Woods takes over and does about three weeks of production and we don't know exactly how much creative say he had into that, but we know at least the second half of the film was a mixture of Fleming and Wood's direction. And we also have multiple writers uh, on this film. So the main writer who is credited for the whole the entire film is Sidney Howard. But Sidney Howard had died. He had died in a tragic uh, accident, in a tractor accident uh, on his farm. And uh, legendary screenwriter Ben Hecht came in to give significant contributions to the story and development of the dialogue. Again, this was Selznick put, playing his hand of, I'm the producer. I can do what I want. I can make these changes how I want. And uh, at the end of the result, we don't know. We don't know like who did what, what who wrote what. Uh, we kind of know people think that Ben Hecht is the guy or the one responsible for all the different title cards for that opening title card sequence. And added it more floweriness to the um to the film but also he uh said that sydney howard's original script and ideas were good enough and there wasn't really much to change so uh there and also selznick would hire multiple people almost daily to write and fix dialogue here and there so it's not a foreign thing it happened on lord of the rings i know that specifically where lines get changed i know there are shows like the sopranos where they constantly change lines you know day to day uh so this so this isn't a new thing to the world of cinema but it's pretty significant that you have three directors multiple writers i don't know the amount of writers because no one really knows uh, but at least you know sydney howard and ben hecht were the main contributors to the screenplay yeah we see that like overlord producer style where just everything is really controlled by selznick and how much he really wants to just envision this film to be perfect in the way that he envisions it and it's just so sad that Sidney Howard died in such like a weird tragic accident and he never actually got to see this work that he really it seems like he created the the core of what the screenplay ended up being and to not be able to kind of seen this three hour just or excuse me this three year kind of production and how long it took to make this film and not being able to actually see the final results is is really heartbreaking. So definitely have to give a shout out to Sidney Howard just to, for uh, really kind of 
breaking this script down and taking such a long book as well. We haven't really talked about like this book is like Bible length as well. It's huge. And then breaking it down into a film while it's a lengthy film, it's, it's digestible still, I think. And it's a coherent and really complex story. This has been called the American Bible, uh, this movie and and the novel itself. Um, And I have this note about the directors uh, from AFI, they kind of, from a, they break it down statistically. So they say in statistical report notes that the three principal directors, uh, Cooker worked for 18 days, Fleming for 93 and Sam Wood for 24 days. And as of July 1st of 1939, that was the end of principal photography. Fleming continued with retakes and pickups uh, throughout the rest of the, the year. And the final shot was done on November 11th of 1939. And they actually filmed the premiere in December of 1939. So they turned all of that around in less than a year. Uh, to give this film. So let's jump right into the second half of the film after giving some more background context because it's really important to understand that none of this just happened in a vacuum. This movie just didn't appear out of Selznick's ass, although it kind of did, if you want to think of it that way. But it came with a lot of stress, frustrating moments, a lot of creative differences, and it 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 worked. It worked really well. So the second half starts as the O'Hara's work in the cotton field, Scarlet's father attempts to chase away a carpetbagger from his land, but is thrown from his horse and killed. So we haven't talked too much about her father. And it's really because he, again, just like her mother, is not really prominent in the film and in the story. A little bit more prominent than, than the mother. Yeah. Yes, and he's definitely. played by uh, Thomas Mitchell. And I, I don't know. There's something about horses and people falling off horses and... These scenes that are supposed to be very traumatic, I just kind of find goofy and silly. I don't know if it's because it's like a dummy that's kind of thrown off the horse, and it's it's very easy to tell that it's kind of all all faked, and it's supposed to be very traumatic and intense. And I could see from Scarlett's point of view, I mean, it's disturbing. You see your father die, and I just I was just kind of goofy to me. I don't know. What do you think? Yeah, it, yeah, he's kind of he kind of becomes goofy in this beginning of the second half. Uh, they chase, yeah, he chases the guy off, and it's. I guess it's supposed to be heroic, but then it ends. It tra- doesn't feel like it. It feels yeah. like he just like fucks up on the horse and just dies. Yeah, exactly. It's kind of comical to me because of how fast it plays out. Yeah, what? Well, yeah, definitely. And um, yeah, and also the synopsis uh, kind of uh, it glosses over probably the biggest thing uh, that happens at the beginning of, of the second half, and that's this encounter with a Yankee. They always refer to the Northerners as Yankees, and as a Mets fan, I hate the Yankees, so I hate being called a Yankee. But uh, so this Yankee who's also trying to loot everything. So he's like, they make a big emphasis that carpetbaggers are like these awful people that are coming to like pillage and take all the, uh, you know, people belongings from everyone in the South. So this, uh, this Northern soldier comes in and Scarlet encounters him and Scarlet gets a gun. She has a gun from that red gave her at the end of the first half. And the Yankees like, you know, come here. Like what, what do you have? And he's, cl- and Scarlet's on the stairs and he's walking up the stairs and Scarlet shoots him in the face, which is, it's pretty graphic because it goes, it's like a big cloud of, of black smoke, but you all, it's very quick cuts. So you see a big cloud of black smoke in this guy's face. And all of a sudden you see blood all over his face as he's falling down the stairs. So for 1939, that was very visually graphic and very, you know, like, oh my God, that was. Especially seeing red blood on screen. Yeah. Too. Again. Yeah. You get to see red blood for the first time. Uh, well, maybe not the first time. I don't know. But yeah. You, but you, for most audiences for how popular yeah. this film is. Yeah. 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 So it, it's pretty in your face. And 
immediately Melanie, who is at the who's at Tara, um, to she's she's resting up. And this is probably like a, a week later after they got back. Uh, Melanie is still recovering from giving birth, so uh, she's like uh, she has this this sword in her hand and she's happy. She's glad that that Scarlet killed this Yankee, um, and then. It, in comes the a very hilarious thing where they have to get rid of the body because they don't want to tell Scarlet's family. There's only five other people. It's Scarlet's dad, Scarlet's two sisters, and then oh, six people, and then the three house servants, Mammy, Pork, and Prissy. And I guess they would rather Melanie and Scarlet felt they didn't, they shouldn't tell them that that they should just try and drag this body away on their own. Yeah, I guess just avoid just getting into it and not having to deal with it and Scarlet killing someone. I mean, that's pretty intense, but also there's more uh, of like a nuance here where it's not just a Yankee, but it's like a runaway Yankee yeah. is kind of what they say. And they make it allude that he's not only trying to like rob houses around the South, but they almost kind of, I don't know if they directly say it, but they allude that like there's men like him that just are going around trying to like rape women that like are not being protected around like Southern homes. So I think it gives more of like an understanding of why Scarlet would just be ready to like shoot this man in the face like immediately because he would probably kill them or rape both of the women because all the men and the people that may be like stronger armed to protect her may be all outside. So yeah, there's a little bit more, but to me, this is why I love the second half so much because I was just like, holy shit, like Scarlet is fucking badass now. Like she's taking a stance and she's like saying exactly what she wants and not in like a whiny like oh i need ashley which we'll get back to we'll definitely have that but she's just a more confident like guns blazing just ready to go character and she just feels more realized at this point and even before this scene we have her working with like her sisters on the cotton field and her sisters are like complaining they're like i don't want to do this like this sucks and she's oh, yeah, like they, slaps her sister and it's yeah. like shut the fuck up like no like we need to do this yeah they're they're complaining that they have to actually work in the fields and, exactly. they, and they have to live the life of the people they've been enslaving for hundreds of years so you know cry me a fucking river yeah. uh miss sue ellen o'hara which the worst sister uh yeah so she's crying and, and complaining and she says i hate Tara," and scarlet slaps her and uh and yeah, and so you get so you have this scene now where they're trying to hide this body. Melanie is too weak to really help, and so Scarlet and they they start real, realizing that as they drag the body that there's a the trail of blood. So Scarlet's like, "Give me your nightgown." So they make Melanie strip down, and uh, they don't really show much of her body, but there's a quick little glance potentially of of the side of her, and uh, so she's naked in this house while Scarlet is putting her the nightgown around the guy's head so it won't bleed as much and they get rid of the body and they don't really show that so it's a pretty it's a funny sequence because it, it's so out of left field and you have these two women who are just like oh fuck we killed this guy and we got to do something about it yeah so the story the story moves on so with the defeat of the confederacy ashley also returns but finds he is of little help at tara when scarlet begs him to run away with her he confesses his desire for her and kisses her passionately but says he cannot leave Melanie. Unable to pay the reconstructionist taxes imposed on Tara, Scarlet dupes her younger sister Sue Allen's fiance, the middle-aged and wealthy general store owner Frank Kennedy, into marrying her by saying Sue Ellen got tired of waiting and married another suitor. Let's take a pause and go go a little bit back. So Ashley comes back, and it it's it's again this like beautiful sequence where Mammy, 
Melanie and Scarlett are all standing outside Tara after you see them helping soldiers. Mammy's washing their clothes. Melanie's giving them food. Melanie's baby, Bo, is interacting with the soldiers, which is a kind of a cute and heartwarming moment if this wasn't about the Confederacy. And uh, and so they see this guy in the distance running in, onto the Tara's ground, and they're kind of like, oh, well, it could be another straggler. And then all of a sudden, Melanie gets wide-eyed, and she's like, oh, my God, that's Ashley. And she runs after, and they embrace it. it it's this beautiful moment. I'm crying again because it's such a beautiful moment uh, to see uh, Melanie and Ashley embrace. And Scarlett tries to go run after to go and say hi to Ashley herself because she's as equally happy, as equally uh, emotional with his return. And Mammy, being the foil to Scarlet and the voice of reason, says to her in the most calming way, he's her husband. And it hits Scarlet like a, a ton of bricks that I don't get to have this moment right now. It's not my husband who's coming back, whether it would be Ashley or another guy, whatnot. But it's this moment again where she's where she's just left in the dust because of Ashley, because of her inability to let go, because of her inability to truly just be fine with the fact she's not going to get what she wants for the first time in life. And even though now she her character sort of changes and she has been able to break out of that mold, uh, she still falls into Ashley's pitfall that she's created for herself also. And uh, and she has to hear Mammy tell her that I don't he's not my husband. I don't get to do anything about it, which then leads to the next kind of sequence of another Scarlet Ashley I love you but I don't love you and this is probably one of the more intense ones because because Ashley kind of says to her yeah I do love you but I can't do that to Melanie I can't leave her yeah it's it's I think around this moment me personally they don't really say it directly but I think either Melanie knows at this point that Scarlet has a thing for Ashley or she's always known. They, you think she's always I known? Because I don't think I, so. I think she's always known. And I think that she's always... she And, and that's the issue with, with Melanie that I have, is that she's so naive and so forgivable to a fault where she thinks that everything Scarlet is doing is out of sincerity and out of being nice and because she just wants to help and she just can't see that. And I think that's that's Melanie's fault. because And it, several there are several women who sees Scarlett doing this shit and, and hate it and try to say something to, to Melanie about it. And she's very like, nah, she's fine. Scarlett's fine. Scarlett would never do that. And I don't, I, she's naive. She's forgive. I don't know like what, what really drives her to feel that way, but I think she knows the whole time. I think it's more so that Melanie's been through so much shit and Scarlett like actually has been there for her. I mean, with Ashley leaving there together for each other. And like when Charles died, like, Melanie was there for Scarlet, and they've just kind of. Well, been it was her brother. The, yes, yeah, <laughs> but they've been through like the ringer together, and they've had a lot of time to really just get to know each other and become good friends. And I, you don't really see that that much from Scarlet's point of view, but I do feel like that Melanie doesn't really understand what's going on, and I think it's later on where Melanie realizes that like she's so still in love with her. Like maybe Melanie's like, oh, it's. It's probably over by now, but I don't know. The way I read it, it's that Melanie doesn't really notice it yet per se because we get later on in the film where there's like more of a setup confrontation where you think it's going to lead to a, to one. But even big then, she doesn't, but 
Yeah, but that is, I think, specific. But we'll get to that. I don't want to. Yeah, I, spoil I, that I just moment. think that with the amount of people who knew it at the beginning of the film, Rhett knows it. He overhears it. It if if Melly doesn't know, then then she's there's something mentally wrong with her. Where she's just that stupid and naive. But I don't think she is. I think she. I, I think she's naive and I think that she knows and I think she's just choosing to believe that it's just not happening because that's as a woman, you don't believe your husband would ever do that to you and that women would just respect each other in that time and which is uh, her own fault and that's society's fault. Uh, so yeah, so you have this whole impassioned sequence and scene between Ashley and, and Scarlett where Ashley again is leading her on, but isn't leading her on uh, and he's also talking about how he wants to uh, how he wants to go up north because the whole society that they know of has completely gone. He says what happens to civilizations when they break up. Uh, so he's saying there's no place in this world for me as a white man. I can't do anything. So I'm going to flee up north and just hide inside the still privileged white life that still today in 2021 of white men in North and in this country. And I'm just going to blend in and just become a banker. Um, it's, uh, bye. <laughs> what? I just said, bye. Yeah. Bye. He's just like, he's just like, Oh wow. Your farm's destroyed. Uh, goodbye. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <Ta-da>! <laughs> I'll see you later. Yeah. I'll, I'll see you later. You do it on your own. There's just no place for me left in the South because we can't do slavery anymore. Well, I want to talk about, his performance, Leslie Howard as Ashley Wilkes. And I found him not only kind of charming, obviously we have this kind of like frustrating relationship where he is definitely in love with Scarlett and he like kind of finally admits his feelings to her, but like tells her it's never going to happen. We have a whole family. Like there's no way I'm ever going to break that apart. And I do find his performance kind of endearing in that way. He has, uh, some more moments down the line that I think are, are really impactful. But uh, what did you think of Leslie Howard's performance as Ashley Wilkes? I, uh, I don't know. I, I think it's, I think it's good. I, I think it's a good performance overall. I, I think I'm more just frustrated with the character itself. Yeah, that's totally fair. I, I, I'm re- I really am frustrated by it because it's such a toxic, it just, Love and romance is, is a toxic thing in this movie. There's nothing there's nothing that's actually pure and, and romantic. It's pretty it's the dark side of romance. It's it's really despicable what he does and he leads he just leads Scarlet on so many times and gives her that false hope. And that's what drives her and that's what makes many of her decisions of the decisions that she makes later on in the film which comes to bite her in the ass is because she still holds out some kind of hope that Ashley is going to be there for her. So, yeah. So I guess you can say Leslie Howard gave a great performance. Um, it's again, it, it's odd because it's a British actor playing a Southerner and he doesn't cover up his accent, I think, too well. Yeah, not all the way. I found it interesting. They spoke about him in the documentary a little bit and specifically how he was 46 and how he was so much older than yeah. all the other women in the he film. He looks older. He yeah, looks he older. definitely looks older, but you can tell that they just like lathered him with makeup 
and behind the scenes uh Shelznick kept seeing him and he kept being like more makeup like give him more eyeliner like give him all these things and and now this is also something we haven't really spoken about is that this film is so preserved it's like preserved perfectly there's like barely any scratches on this film and we watched the the HBO Max which is like the the newest restored version I'm not sure when they uh, restored it but it's like so picture perfect and like in perfect quality and there's barely any scratches or like any kind of marks on the film so you can see like Leslie Howard's makeup and it's like so clear that he's wearing like eyeliner and like he has makeup all over his cheeks and there's some other aspects about that with makeup that you kind of are they're more revealed I think by just how high quality this print is now the film but yeah, I just wanted to talk about that because I found it really interesting that he was so much older than all the other women. Yeah, uh, it, it's something to to think about for Ashley. But at the same time, he it's just disturbing. It's disturbing how he just leads her on. He he refuses to really put his foot down to Scarlett about it, even though he he kind of he says to her, like, I don't love you. But then he still embraces her, kisses her on the cheek. They still have multiple kisses throughout the film uh, on the lips. And uh it's just it's it's really it's toxic and it and it and it hurts Scarlett greatly. Yeah, it feels kind of like lustful for yeah. me. Like both of them. I mean, Scarlett, she's just so naive. Like it feels like she doesn't even. She just really her character is just wanting what she doesn't have, and if she can't have it, then like she wants it even more. And I think that's kind of a realistic and really complex themes and, and character perspective that we don't really see very often because uh, it can be kind of quite frustrating having that and uh, one of the biggest issues of the film for me is really their relationship and really just why she likes Ashley so much is it, it's never defined why it's just I do I do love him I'm obsessed with him we need to be together but it's not why it's not because he's a strong man because he's like a hard worker she never names like any aspect of him and that to me is like the biggest issue of the film because we're just jumping off the opening scene is just like oh no he's, he's getting married to someone else Melanie like no that can't be right but it's like you need to establish why you love him so much if the whole film is going to be about just me absolutely being obsessed with Ashley like you need to establish why she loves him so much and I just don't think they ever put in that work and to establish that at all yeah I I really just think that's just all chalked up to that she's the girl next door their neighbors they grew up together and you know that's not good enough yeah I I know it's not good enough for you but for (laughs) night but for 1939 on a something that everyone knew the story it you know, everyone, I just don't it, think it makes sense. It doesn't. I, no, you're right. It, I think it, it's like the biggest issue of this entire film. Yeah, honestly, it, it, you're right. It doesn't make any sense, and it. But it's easily chalked up to that it was this part of the times. But it's also unfortunate that that was the way of the times because they could have expanded upon it. But I don't even know what that would even really look like. That they needed a scene to be like, oh well, he. We had this like moment as a child. Is like that something you would be looking for, or is it just? I mean, it could be aspects of that, but then you're including like flashbacks, and that gets kind of yeah complicated. But even more so, just like why does she love him so much? She never really because says she doesn't why. know. She doesn't know any better. That's the whole yeah. But at this point, like that doesn't work anymore. But she's like a new Scarlet. She shouldn't be so obsessed is, with him anymore. Yeah, she's new, but she's also. She's also been hurt by, I guess, all the other... Like, she already lost one husband. The other guy, Rhett, who is, like, infatuated with her, but not really, like, left her for in the dust. And so she's kind of forgotten about him at this point. And so I guess because Ashley had just returned, she's so emotional about that. She, She's still in love with him. She's just still... She's, she's 17 now. 
She's probably about, you know, ready to be turned 18. She just doesn't know any better. I, I, I'm not going to fault her for that, but I'm just going to fault her for the fact that she's still trying and still lying in the face uh, to Melanie. She's still being this awful two faced person to her. And, and after Melanie gives her, uh, so much love and, and praise throughout the, it's just, yeah, it, it's complicated. And, you know, my girlfriend could probably tell you that I'm a, that I don't understand emotions too well and I'm, and I can't explain relationships, but it's a very, it's very odd. It's a, again, it's a toxic relationship and, and it's also a product of the time. Uh, so you said she was 17. So I was like, oh, maybe that kind of more explains it. But then I was like, no, it's at the end of the Civil War, which is four years later. So she should be 20 by this point. Right. Oh, yeah. Well, so she should be more mature. So yeah. that's like my biggest issue with this movie is that like she is more mature and in all do. these other aspects. But she still just acts like a child when it comes to Ashley. So this whole scene ends with, again, this whole emphasis on land and Ashley takes dirt from the ground and puts it in Scarlet's hand. It's like, you will always have this land. You'll always have Tara. So again, this whole emphasis that land is the thing that lasts, that, that Tara is the thing that Scarlet should be focused on and not, not a guy, but that this land is hers. And, and I think that's a powerful thing too, because for most of the, of the time of that period, land wasn't a thing that women were encouraged to take upon themselves. It was mostly men. So this is another mold that's being broken and uh, which is good, but it's just something of note just to remember that Tara is this is something that has to be important to Scarlet because emphasized by the men in her life. And she has to break that mold, just like you were saying, which is now another obstacle. It's not just about repairing what's been broken on the farm, making sure the land is is back to snuff and making sure the crops are growing. But now she has this reconstitutional like taxes that are kind of imposed on all of them. Yeah. So re- so we're in this reconstructionist era. Taxes are imposed on Tara. Um, they have to pay three hundred dollars in taxes, which three hundred dollars back then was this large amount. Um, and so Scarlett it has to devise a plan uh, to get this money. So her first uh, thing she tries to do is she goes to Atlanta with Mammy and she tries to get Rhett to give her the money. Uh, and a funny thing that happens is as she's telling Mammy she's going to do this, she's like, oh, but I don't have a dress. And so she takes her mother's curtains from the house. And Mammy is just like, you can't take those curtains. You can't make yeah. a dress. And Scarlett, to her credit, is like, I'm in charge of Tara now. They're my curtains, and I'm going to make a dress out of Beautiful them. Beautiful emerald green, yeah. just like out of Wizard of Oz. So, yeah. So, this is where I wanted to first talk about, like, the color green, because the color green pops up a lot. Um, and I know I said Scarlet was like a spider, but I also think she could be a snake in the grass So because of the way she kind of works her way in. So, she wears green a few times. She wears green at the... Um, at the barbecue at 12 Oaks at the beginning, when she sees Rhett in this jail, she gets a green hat from Rhett uh, when he turns from Europe. And that's actually in the, the first half of the movie that happens. Um, so green becomes this color, even though you would think, oh, scarlet, red. And there's there's not much red in the second half of the film. And especially not in Scarlet. It happens a few times, and I think it's it purposeful. A very specific scene where she does wear red. Yeah, so so red is gone, but green is this very dominant color, and that could be a Technicolor thing, because green really popped out on because of Technicolor uh, film and, and, and all that, so I don't know. I just think that... I, I don't know if there's really anything specific to really take away from it, but green to me says a lot about Scarlet, and it reminds me of that snake in the grass just biding its time waiting to, mm-hmm. to attack, and 
and do this thing. So and so what she does is very snake like. So she gets her way. So she gets to Atlanta. Rhett is in a jail. Uh, he's he was captured, I guess, by Northerners, and it's fucking hilarious because he's just playing cards with them, <laughs> with the people that have imprisoned him. Yeah. yeah, they they're like, oh yeah, but Rhett Rhett's Butler. the best. Yeah, yeah, Rhett's awesome. We love Rhett. <laughs> so they're giving, you know, so he's gambling his money away. We don't know how much Rhett has, but he's like, oh, three hundred and forty dollars I lost on this game of poker. Okay, take it to my debt. So he clearly still has the money. Um, so they get to him in jail. The guy's like, oh, there's this girl and her. And her mammy uh, outside, and Rhett's like, "Oh yeah, I need to see her." And they tell Scarlett tells him that he's her sister, and they're like, well, "How many sisters do you have?" And he's like, "This one I really want to see, though." So this isn't the first time a woman has come to the jail to see Rhett Butler, this suave guy that he is. So Scarlett comes in, and she's—you can just see she's starting to wrap that web around him, trying to be that snake or that spider, whichever one you want to use, and try to be like. Oh, Rhett, you know, Tara is doing great, but, uh, you know, we, 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 we need some money. Can you give us some money, Rhett? Like, I, we really need this. And uh, and he sees through this a little bit. He, he kind of catches on pretty quickly. But what really is the tipping point for him is he's holding her hands and he looks and Scarlett's hands are completely, you know, beat up from working in the fields. And they, there's a callback because at the beginning of the second half, her sisters are like, oh, mother always said you can tell how ladylike a woman was by her hands and all their hands are destroyed from working in the fields. So Rhett is like, yeah, okay, you need my money. And he kind of tries to tell her that he'll marry her if she'll just wait for him to get out of jail, uh, which Scarlett is like, no, no way. And Rhett says, you're not worth $300. You'll never mean anything but misery to any man, which is very true at the end of the film is she's just a miserable being. So there's a lot in this scene. And this is really why I love the second half so much is because of Scarlett. We have this kind of change where she does make that dress out of the curtains and it's because she's putting on a show. And it's why I love Vivian Lee's performance and why I love Scarlett O'Hare as a character now is that she's essentially playing herself. She's like playing the same person that Rhett met originally that naive girl who's just like oh this cute little girl like she doesn't know any better and she's doing it so well it's like you can see how much she's changed in her performance by the way she's reversing and portraying this new aspect of her but it's just like replicating the way she used to be and she's trying to fool scar she's trying to fool Rhett and it's kind of like this cute little scene back and forth and the way you said that they kind of reveal that it's in her hands it's it's really powerful because that's such a interesting way to kind of reveal someone's lying and to kind of show that she's you know actually working in the fields and is really just all is just kind of maintaining the land and she's not really wealthy and rich and just checking up on red it's she's there for money and just to use him more and and that's just how much and how kind of mischievous she's kind of gotten that she's like she'll go and do whatever it takes to to win and to do whatever it takes to save tara and is just super interesting and this is such a complex scene and it's funny with like the playing cards and how he's in prison but like they love him and he's not in prison probably because he's a northerner and he's rich and he's probably paid off all these guys and it there's so much to unpack and there's this this little scene here and it's it's why i really love the second half is moments like these yeah it, it's it's certainly a great scene i it was one of the scenes that i really wanted to talk about uh, because at a certain level, you have two great actors going back and forth, and and the chemistry is really great between Lee and Gable. They they really did a great job. 
working and bouncing off of each other. And uh, yeah, it's just one of those scenes that really stands out in the beginning of the second half because it's one of those ways that Scarlet start, tries to become her own person and, and try to make her way, but she fails with Rhett. But her next victim is just around the corner. So her and Mammy uh, go out there. They're like, oh, fuck, like we're not going to get... Um, <laughs> We're not going to get the money from Rhett. And actually, at that same moment, another girl comes up to the jail wanting to come see Rhett. So, again, so this is just this thing that just keeps on happening. And Scarlet sees. It's like another oh, reason yeah. why she's like, fuck this guy. Like, I yeah. just wanted money from him. Like, he's just a misogynist. He yeah. just wants to fuck as many women as possible. Yeah. And I'm pretty sure that woman has some red in her in her dress. So, again, so the red is going to to some people that may be not as uh, as favorable in this culture and time. Uh, but yeah, so she, so she meets and runs into Frank Kennedy and Frank Kennedy is a guy that we had seen a little bit earlier in, in the beginning of the second half. He was one of the soldiers that came back that Mammy was demanding clothes from to wash in the laundry. And he even asked Scarlett if Sue Ellen, Scarlett's sister would marry him. So this is supposed to be one of those things. He's an older guy. They make him seem like he's supposed to be in his like 40s or a little bit older but he doesn't look that way you can tell again what you're saying about with the makeup and and uh the re- and the way the quality of the of the film being done up over the years uh so you can just tell this guy is probably younger but they put like white whiskers on him yeah i think it could also be the transition from black and white to color too just yeah. not being there's that kind of like change of not only obviously cinematography and and making sets that kind of work in color but also even makeup like that's something that's very drastically different between black and white and that's maybe probably more exaggerated in black and white to show off those things that now that you're in color it's just like whoa whoa (laughs) you just spray painted the guy's hair or sideburns white and that's how he's 50 or 40 yeah yeah it's extremely weird but uh so scarlet sees this opportunity and so frank is showing around the store and she's you know she's sort of impressed and she's and she's starting to pick up on that oh frank's starting to make money frank has money frank Frank does this. Frank has a lumber side business that isn't fully fleshed out that she's like, well, I could take over this and I could, you know, uh, make this bigger and better and get more money. So the gears are turning. And so she says to Frank, will you come drop us off at my aunt, aunt's house in Atlanta? He says, sure. And as he's getting to the carriage, he starts asking about Sue Ellen. He's like, oh, I haven't heard from her in a while. You know, how is she doing? And Scarlett is uh does that snake in the grass and pounces and she's like oh you, you haven't heard oh sue ellen uh got got engaged to to another guy and uh she fell in love with someone else and frank is just so distraught <laughs> and you also have mammy in the same scene and i mean this is probably why they gave hattie the, the fucking oscar because it's such a great facial reaction you just see mammy in the background wide eyed going what the fuck is this girl doing right now she's manipulative yeah like changing the game i did you brought up that a great reactionary moment which is to me it was humorous i don't know if that was the intention but it was very like a funny goofy face that she was making reacting to it but why do you think they or why do you think scarlet wanted mammy to come with her it's almost like she wanted protection but like uh Benefit of watching it today. <laughs> watching yeah. it today. So, so she's going to go do it. She's like, I'm going to go to Atlanta. Mammy is saying, well, who are you going to go with? And Scarlett's like, I'll go alone. And Mammy's like, oh, no, you're not. You're not going alone. And so that's why Mammy is She there. just goes as like the motherly figure yeah, to watch out for her. Yeah, that's what it, I thought. Exactly. And there's even a little sequence where Mammy and Scarlett are walking in Atlanta as it's, be, as it's completely taken over by Northerners. It's being built up. Mammy 
for her, she's seeing all these black you know men walking around freely, you know, dressed up as Northerners, which to her is a cultural shock for and which is so sad to think about. And yeah, so so this whole sequence kind of ends with uh, Scarlett saying this great line to Frank, may I put my hand in your pocket? Because <laughs> she's saying, oh, I'm a little cold. So she's literally and figuratively putting her hand in his pocket to take his money and to get and to give Tara, you know, she wants Tara to survive. So she's doing whatever she can. Um, and yeah, so it's a pretty, pretty great sequence. Um, so, uh, so she get, they get home and she tells, uh, she tells her sisters, and this is actually one of the scenes where she is wearing red, she's wearing a red dress. And she tells everyone that she married Frank. Her sisters are so upset. They can't stand Scarlet, which to me, at a certain point, I'm like, why can't you guys just go be like Scarlet and go marry your own men? Yeah, yeah. Of, like go fucking, do something. Stop like, complaining about picking cotton. Like, go live your life. Yeah, like they they just complain and they whine and bitch, and it's just like you guys have the same ability to do whatever you want. Like, go do it. Like Scarlet's doing this because you guys won't. So, uh, yeah. So, so you see Scarlet in red. Melanie is consoling the sisters. Scarlet is talking to Ashley, and Ashley even says. I should have just robbed the money for the plantation because he seems upset that that Scarlett got married. So again, it it's a toxicity relationship between them, and so so now this new life of Scarlett has a second wife, as a second wife, second husband, and um, and everything seems, I guess, to be going dandy. They are they build up this lumber mill. She gets Ashley to join in on the business, so she stops Ashley from going north with the help of Melanie. Also, uh, so basically, she's. Ashley's like, well, I won't go. Scarlett says, you must come help me out. You have to. She starts crying, and Melanie walks in, and Melanie's like, oh, Scarlett, why are you upset? Why are you crying? And it's like hugging her, and there's this great shot where you, we see Scarlett's face, but no one else can see her face, and Scarlett is not crying. Scarlett has his eyebrows raised, listening to Melanie be like, you have to help Scarlett, Ashley. You have to go into business with Frank. You have to give, you know, stay here in Atlanta. And Ashley's just like, I, I can't fucking win. <laughs> yeah, he's just set up perfectly. Yeah, so so uh, so instead of it becoming like Kennedy, it's a Kennedy's general store. It becomes Wilkes and Kennedy. So not even Kennedy. So immediately Scarlett's hand is like, yeah, yeah, yeah. You're Frank. You're not going to get the main billing on this. <laughs> this is going to Ashley, and then this leads to one of the un, a very disturbing sequence where they hire prisoners for labor uh, to work at the lumber mill. And it becomes this wink, wink, you know, situation for Scarlett with the foreman being like, yeah, we won't like you guys won't say anything. I'm not going to say anything. And we're just going to get all this lumber in. And Scarlett's like, OK, fine. Wash my hands of it. And we're going to get all the lumber in. And Ashley just well, both Frank and Ashley are kind of like, nah, like you can't do this. Like you yeah, shouldn't like taken do aback by this. Yeah. yeah. And so she, but she's very firm with Frank and Frank tries to be like, you know, sugar, like do this. And. She says this great line, great balls of fire, don't bother me anymore, and don't call me sugar. And Frank leaves, and then Ashley is with her, because he's also part of this business. And he says that he won't stand for mistreated workers, and he won't stand for this kind of labor. And the, and the, and, he, and he's like, you know that what they're going to do. They're going to torture all these workers. And Scarlett says he didn't, mind if, he didn't feel that way when they had slaves. And Ashley replies, that was different. We didn't treat them that way. She, she like implies directly like you had slaves and he was saying yeah. like oh that was my dad like once the war was over I was going to give them all up and they never really explain what happened to his property because it sounds like he has a property that had slaves and well had... it was 12 oaks that was just destroyed oh that's right yeah. so it is just destroyed okay so that does explain it and 
this is a really interesting scene because you see Scarlet just how low she'll go. And she's doing this not really because she believes in like slave labor but more so she just wants the cheapest thing she wants to make the most amount of money it doesn't it doesn't matter who's in her way what it takes she just wants to profit and become more successful and more independent essentially yeah and she she does a great job uh becoming independent in this like new way of life she's she's running the store everyone knows that she's really the one in charge and she they make a mention that she even is riding her own horse and buggy um you know, throughout the town. So, which is probably was fucking astonishing for Atlanta to see a woman driving, but that's just, that was the sign of that time, which I'm glad it's gone. And uh, so that leads to the next sequence uh, of events. So Frank, Ashley and Rhett and several other accomplices make a night raid on a shanty town after Scarlett is attacked while she was driving alone. And so in this whole scene, she's getting attacked by these, we, I don't even know what to call them. I guess they're, they're probably all runaway slaves. Yeah. I would assume. No, well, it was a mixture of that, but it was it wasn't it. Oh no, it was a white guy and a black guy. So it was a mixture of carpetbaggers and ex-slaves and people who don't know where to go and they're in the shanty town and they these two guys attack Scarlet and um, and Big Sam, who was one of the people who worked on Terra Plantation, just happened to be there and he saves Scarlet and he gets her back and. Um, and Frank basically vows a vengeance on her and everyone leaves. So this is actually one difference from the novel that I wanted to bring up. And that's because they dress as the Ku Klux Klan when they attack the shanty town in the novel. Yeah, it's, it's very different. And I learned a lot from the documentary because after Birth of a Nation and the kind of feedback, even back then the feedback from that film was quite disturbing from uh, black reporters, the black community that were vocal about just how inaccurate and just glorifying of the KKK was throughout that film. So uh, Selznick was kind of on a mission to at least correct it as much as possible to give them as much of a, like a voice on he, screen, even though it's not perfect and it's clearly not perfect. Yeah, he. I think it was at also at that point that D.W. Griffith was starting to get criticized for Birth of a Nation, and I he was basically thinking, I don't want to have that same fate. So he wanted to change it up, even though it doesn't do that successfully. Yeah, maybe it's not, like, maybe he's doing it just for the image, maybe it's not what he believes, but it's it's odd, because we have uh, Big Sam, who's played by Everett Brown, uh, who was, like, a field foreman, and we have a couple scenes, like, she sees him at one point, I think, in Atlanta, Yeah, uh, and they talk, and he just seems so happy to be fighting for the South, and while he's on screen and he has speaking lines, it's it's good representation, but it's kind of disturbing because they're, like, forcing this guy who then ends up showing clearly that the South does not give a shit about him. Like, he's living in this shanty town, like, has no home. No one knows about him. He's just, like, stuck here. So it's clear that, like, the South doesn't really care for him, even though he seems so gung-ho to, like, save them and, and help them out. So it's it's kind of disturbing, this aspect. And, yeah, knowing that it was supposed to be KKK originally... But it leads to a super compelling scene after. Yeah, so it it, uh, it leads to this scene where they're all waiting at, um, I think it's Melanie's house. And Scarlet doesn't know what's going on. Scarlet is, she's still shell-shocked that she was attacked and, and all that. And so, so they're all sitting in, inside knitting and they hear a knock at the door and it's Rhett. And Rhett is saying, you got to tell me where they are. They got, you know, everyone's in danger. You got to tell me where they are. And Melanie is 
tells him what's going on, you know, tells him where they are, and he leaves. And, and Scarlet's like, what the fuck? What's going on? And then they tell her that the men want to go essentially avenge her as the Ku Klux Klan, even though they don't show that in the movie, but they go to avenge her and, um, and they just wait. And then a Northern soldiers come to the house and they're saying, we know there was a raid on the shanty town. We know that, that the, your husbands were involved. We know that they were a part of it. And where are they? And they're playing dumb. They go, we don't know where they are, blah, 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 blah. And then Rhett comes and Rhett is holding what is, you presume is a drunk Ashley. And then there's a drunk Dr. Mead as well. And so it's just the three of them come back and they're all drunk and supposedly, and they talk their way out of it with the Northern soldiers. So it's this huge tense scene and moment because you think that they're not going to get away with it, that the Northern soldiers are going to get them. And then they, the Northern soldiers know Rhett and Rhett's like, come on, you guys got to believe us. We were drinking. And they're like, no, we don't. Where were you? And he's like, I really don't want to say it. And they're like, well, you got to tell us. And he's like, I don't want to say in front of their wives, but okay. And he says that they were at Bell Watling. And Bell Watling is, again, that um, in charge of the brothel and the whorehouse in, in Atlanta. And he's like, you guys all know Bell yourself because it's implied that Rhett probably took these northern soldiers there. And that was probably a way he got in and out of trouble throughout the few years of the Civil War with the northerners. And uh, so he's, you know, he says, like, you guys made all these, you know, wives very upset with their husbands. And, so they get to so the Northern soldier is very apologetic. He's saying, I'm sorry for exposing you guys like that. And then he leaves and then it's revealed that Ashley who had a jacket around him was shot in the shoulder. And so he's bleeding out. And so then they quickly there, none of them are actually drunk and they try to, you know, they have to heal him and, and whatnot. And the scene ends with, with Scarlet holding Ashley's hand as he's in bed and Rhett's right there. And Rhett asks her, don't you want to know where Frank is your husband? And she's like, oh, what? Was he a Bell Watlings too? And he's like, no, he's laying in a ditch in Shantytown dead. Yeah. <laughs> she doesn't really seem to care she at doesn't all care about at all. him. She like honestly forgets about him. Oh, she com- she completely forgets about him. She does does not care about Frank. I mean, yeah, yes, for the money and stuff, but she's widowed again. She's now, this is the second husband that she's lost at the probably 20, 21 years old at this point. And, uh, and, and again, Rhett sees her holding Ashley's hand, knowing that, that, that Scarlett was still in love with him. It's, it's very disturbing. Cause obviously Frank, he seemed kind of smitten over her. He like liked her a lot. It seemed and, and loved her and wanted to be a good husband to her and gave her so much. And you, one from the film's point of view, you don't even get to see his death or like his heroic kind of trying to revenge her attack. It probably wasn't heroic. No, it probably wasn't. <laughs> he, he probably shot immediately. He, he probably just got killed immediately. But uh, yeah, it's it's incredibly sad for his character because he just kind of gets killed off screen. She forgets about him. Like she doesn't even really acknowledge him that much after that point, and he's just gone from the story from there. Yeah. So so Frank is dead. Skyler is widowed again. And now Rhett makes his move. Now Rhett sees the opportunity. It's time, Rhett. Yeah, so Rhett makes his move, and he he calls upon her while she's in mourning. She actually takes a swig of, I think it, I don't think it's mouthwash. I think it's cologne because of her reaction to it. Because then she puts it on her like neck and hands to make her smell good. Oh, uh, because so she was why, drinking. That's why. Yeah, she, she was drinking, yeah. and then she starts to become a bigger drinker as the film goes on. And, um, and yeah, so Rhett comes in and, and calls upon her. And he proposes he he wants to he wants to marry her and he says there are a few lines 
Um, he says, I'll tell you why, Scarlett, to why he wants to marry her, because I'm the only man over 16 and under 60 who's around to show you a good time. Plays into more of, uh, of Scarlett's, like her not really having sex at that point. I think that's like a good implication of, of why I think she hasn't had sex yet and why her... She's not, a, she's not a sexual character and why a lot of the kissing in this movie is very weird and, and icky to her because it's not, it's kind of her succumbing to the power of the men around her. And then, uh, so they try, so they kind of kiss with each other and then he, Rhett is going to kiss her again, but then he goes, no, I don't think I will kiss you. Although you need kissing badly, that's what's wrong with you. You should be kissed and often by someone who knows how. So again, playing to that whole sexuality thing and, and, and if Scarlett has had sex or not, which I, plays an even bigger role. So uh, yeah, so Rhett proposes to her. And, and another weird thing with color I just want to briefly mention is that the whole sky outside is yellow. Did you notice that? How yellow everything was outside of the house? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Nothing. Is, so so the one thing that I can think of off the top of my head to explain the, the stylistic choice is that Rhett and, and Scarlet are another toxic relationship, and it's the sign of the apocalypse that they're getting together. Oh, interesting. <laughs> like okay. It's, it's, it's apocalyptic. That's the only thing I can think of for why yellow was chosen. Yeah, I don't know. I didn't think too much about it. I completely forgot about there even being color, like, shining through the window until you just said that. But, yeah, I don't know what that could be other than it could just look really cool. I mean, it kind of reminds me of a lot of Hitchcock use of colors, just like lights blasting outside of windows causing that like kind of emerald glow like in vertigo i'm thinking of specifically but yeah yeah it's kind of intense because she still is kind of like rejecting him and he's like "Mm, yeah i'm kind of tired of you not wanting me even though you seem like you do but you don't and yeah it's like they're gonna like okay like we're gonna get married but do you really want to marry me is it just for money yeah because she kind of mentions how she's like oh you are really rich right like this would be pretty good for me and she says it like to him basically too yeah he she uh he he questions it to her too and and she sort of admits it that it would be nice and and yeah so now so now they're now they're together they 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 get married it's the start of the what becomes the big climax of the second half. Uh, Rhett and Scarlett have a daughter uh, whom Rhett names Bonnie Blue. Do you know what the name Bonnie Blue actually represents? Yeah, it's Bonnie Blue is the original Confederate flag. Yeah, okay. I didn't know that until... Um, doing some research. Until doing some research. It's weird, though, because like he was kind of on the south side, but he kind of wasn't. He was originally a northerner. He didn't really care about the war, so... It's it was that was weird to me why they would have that much significance over well, over I think, that. I, I think it's know. more of the color blue, I, and so blue starts to get introduced in this. So Bonnie, so Bonnie, she's Bonnie Blue. She's this innocent child. Scarlet wears a few blue outfits uh, a few times. She actually wears a blue outfit when she runs into Rhett again at the beginning of the second half. Um, so well, not be, after Rhett is out of jail. The first time she runs into Rhett, she's wearing blue. So I don't know if that plays into this whole innocence, this idea of innocence. You know, the skies are all completely red and yellowed, but a clear blue skies would signify maybe a good time. So, uh, so that's what I think where maybe blue can represent. And so, so Bonnie Blue is this innocent uh, figure. So, so they're married now. They uh, they go to New Orleans to have their honeymoon, and it seems like they live there for a little bit, but then Scarlet has the nightmares, and they go back to Terra. Again, this whole idea that land and, and the red earth of Terra being this this thing of power for, for her, 
um, which is like I think another kind of Superman reference. Like Superman gets all his power from the sun, the red sun, and you know Scarlet gets all of her power from the red earth of Tara. I'm not saying that Superman was influenced by Gone with the Wind, <laughs> but I'm also not saying that. So uh, yeah, so Red and Scarlet have a daughter named Bonnie Blue. Scarlet still pines for Ashley, and to and chart and chagrined at the perceived ruin of her figure. Um, she refuses to have any more children or share a bed with Rhett. So we get another scene where Mammy's putting on the corset on Scarlet, and Scarlet's disappointed that her waist size is still above 20 and not 18 inches. So this really awful body imaging is, is going on for her. And Mammy's just like, you had a child. You are an older woman. You're never going to get that figure back. And it's another kind of, you know, last straw on the camel's back where Scarlet's like, all right, don't have to care about my body at this point. She, yeah, she's becoming more vain as the story goes on, and she's just, she's still a little bit naive, but she's vain. She's, like, coming, becoming obsessed with jewelry and fashion and just having more and more and just really becoming materialistic with her possessions. So after that moment, like, he's assuming that it's related to a kid, right, and they're, like, trying to talk, and he's trying to, like, make up with her, and they're arguing in front of her like big grand wardrobe they're arguing together right and he's just like he knows something's off and like why she's been acting so weird and it's not until she like she was like staring longingly at this like little photo of ashley that they had and he like steps on it and finally realizes like oh that's why she's so upset because she's not with ashley still like this bullshit is still a thing like come on yeah yeah red red thinks that it, it should be done and, and over with um yeah, but it's a not kid together like we we should be moving past this like you're not a kid anymore we have a kid like we have a family yeah. like we're beyond this i gave you everything that i have yeah and and scarlet just doesn't really give a shit um a little backtrack here though Rhett is completely smitten with bonnie he says that she's the first thing that ever truly belonged to him so maybe that kind of opens the door a little bit to maybe Rhett's past so that's why maybe he's so rich because he worked really hard because he came from a poor life that he never really got to have anything that was truly his. I don't know. Cause they also makes mention of a mammy, but it maybe pulls a little bit into the psyche of Rhett. Um, but he loves Bonnie. He is yeah, anything that he can think of to give a baby girl. He's going to give it to her talk. Talks a lot about giving her a horse. She's in a horse carriage, always wearing blue. Um, yeah. So he, he can, and I think Scarlett could give less of a shit. She even says, I'm the one who had the baby. You should be like as if you should be the one smitten with me, not the baby itself. Yeah, but there's not many moments where she's even like with Bonnie or like taking care of Bonnie. She's kind of absent and alone for most of. Yeah, the Mammy does all the work. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah, Mammy does all the work. Um, yeah. So we, so we, we move on. So uh, there's this loveless marriage between Rhett and Scarlet, and one day at Frank's Mill, Scarlet and Ashley are seen embracing by Ashley's sister India Wilkes, and. She holds a big, intense dislike of Scarlet because uh, Scarlet took Charles from her. She was the one originally supposed to marry Charles Hamilton. And she starts spreading out these rumors about Scarlet and Ashley. And later, and, it, and it's that evening also is, I think it's a birthday party for Ashley. Um, Rhett heard the rumors. He forces Scarlet to attend the party for Ashley alone. And then Melanie stands by Scarlet. She welcomes her to the party. Scarlet's wearing an, another red dress. This is the second and, only, and last red dress she wears in the second half of the movie. And um, and it's it's a really cool shot and entrance because there's a famous, I'm sure many people have seen it, of Scarlet standing in the hallway and eyebrow raised. She's wearing the red dress. 
And she's like, you guys are going to fuck with me? Here I am, Scarlett O'Hara, say it to my face type of thing. To me, this was like a reference to the Scarlet Letter. And I don't know yeah. if I'm reading too much into it, but it's like that red, like she is the enemy, like walking behind enemy lines. And she's just there for a target, basically. And and Rhett thinks she's going to get destroyed. He thinks Melanie's going to like break up their friendship. She's never going to see Ashley again. He thinks this is going to like solve their relationship and just like really just put Scarlet in this situation because she put herself in this situation. Yeah, and th- again, this is another one of those Melanie scenes where she's like, oh, hey, Scarlett, what's going on? Oh, those rumors? Please, don't worry about it. I know you would never actually try to take my husband away from me because he's my husband, and, and I love him so much, and we have this baby together, right, Scarlett? You would never do that, and that's so naive of of Melanie, and it's see, a it's a great performance by Olivia de Havilland, but... Um, see, I didn't even see it that way. You for, didn't? For me, no. It was like, at this point, she knew, and she was just like, she heard those rumors, or India told her those, those uh, uh, just the hugging and seeing that, and she was just like, oh, yeah, I already know. Like, I don't, I don't really care. It's the way I read it, and I mean, it's really complex. Like, why would she feel that way? And maybe it's because of how much Scarlet has done so much for her. Like, she's alive probably because of Scarlet multiple times. Uh, her kid's alive because of Scarlet. So, like, I think there's just, like, this dichotomy where she's just, yeah, I accept it. She's in love with Ashley. Ashley's never going to betray me. I'm just, uh, I'm fine with it. It's, it's whatever. Like, I love Scarlet. It doesn't matter. Ah, I don't know. I don't know if I'm like projecting too much onto it, but that's the way I kind of perce- you would, uh, perceive their relationship. Yeah, I, it, it's so it's so complicated, and it and then that's what's also frustrating about the film is because you want to know like why can't if this was made today there'd be a huge blow up scene, huge blow up scene of them going at each other and and Melanie being like, no, he's mine, and I, I guess not to be as possessive, but still like there's this like genuine love even though they're cousins like still remember people they're cousins and it's it's oh it's complicated i don't they don't tell us and they don't say anything or ever show it so that's why i think we have two different interpretations of it um and i think both can be right and i i'm not sure there's a third way to look at it though it's either that she knows or she doesn't know and 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 there's not really much more to take away from that, besides that, Scarlet kind of got embarrassed in front of all these people. But she also got away with it, right? She did get Where away with she it. She didn't get, like, lambasted in front of everyone. Oh, and, yeah. And she... Because Melanie bailed her out. Yeah, because she just seems to be accepting or oblivious either way. And that's not what Rhett wanted, obviously. No, it's not what Rhett wanted, but Rhett... So this is... Uh, now we get to the scene, which I... It is totally out of my realm of, of giving an appropriate, I think, response and answer to it. But um, it's something that's been brought up even more and more, especially today. So after returning home from the party, Scarlett finds Rhett downstairs drunk and they argue about Ashley. Uh, Rhett basically confronts her about it. Rhett kisses Scarlett. He forces himself uh, against Scarlett's will. And then he rapes her. So there is like a really... We'll get to that, but there yeah. is a really uh, famous and, and significant moment where he like essentially is like pretending to crush her head, right? Yeah, he yeah puts his hands like around her head, and he and he says literally he says, "I could crush you right now, I could squeeze this out of you," and uh, it's it's like a it's very intense and it's intense and disturbing, and up until obviously the very suggestive rape, like they don't show anything uh, visually on screen. 
but she clearly doesn't want to go upstairs with him and she's clearly just kind of like fighting it but you have before that obviously you have some sympathy with rat because he's just like what like come on like can we just fix this like i want to squeeze your head so fucking bad not to kill you but to like get ashley out of your head like he's just so at like wit's end with it and he just like doesn't get it and doesn't understand and and you were talking about sexuality a lot and her not wanting to have sex and it's not like very blatant we're kind of having to read through the lines because they don't really say a lot of things and it's still the code error and we're like not getting these fully kind of revealed things about their sexuality but it seems like they've just haven't had sex for like a long time like maybe since they like i don't think they had sex since they conceived bonnie yeah and i think that was on the honeymoon like and, and that's what i'm saying is that is that scarlet is not a sexual person that she she refutes all sexual acts nothing to like she does not want to kiss she kisses ashley but even but he rebuts her so she when she's getting kissed by someone she rebuts them she is so confused sexually and i'm not saying you know she's confused like where their sexual um preferences are she just doesn't know how to like deal with it she doesn't know how to act properly uh process that kind of emotion process that maturity level and what it culminates to is that she has blocked out Rhett and you know, he's a guy and, and, and it's this, it's this male toxicity that, that has been going on for the beginning of time and still goes on. And he is like, you're my wife and I should have the ability to sleep with you. Um, with obviously he does it without her consent and he, it's his last straw and in a drunken state, he performs what is defined as marital rape. It, it's become such a huge thing in to, in modern world and, and critiquing it because it's it's clearly rape. She clearly doesn't want it. But then the next scene, the next morning, she's like sexually free. She is so happy. With yeah, herself. she just seems like in the best mood, just laying it's in bed. Only, like this is amazing. It's so, the only time she sings in the movie. Oh, that's really interesting. I never thought about that. Yeah, it's the only time she sings something. <sighs> See, that aspect is so confusing for me because it's like, what are they trying to say? Like. Yeah, they trying to say like women just need to have sex more and they'd be a lot happier because like you could easily read it as that or you could just say oh no it's just scarlet like scarlet is fucked up and she just needed to get laid and she'd feel better like and she'd be normal now but like there's just not that much there to even like get that connection and understand that it's just like oh she's happy but it's like you were like literally trying to run away from him last night and he's dragging you up the stairs so it's just like what like an orgasm fixed the entire relationship? No, it's clear because the next day Red apologizes for his behavior and offers Scarlett a divorce, but she rejects it, saying that it would just be like a disgrace upon her family. So it's it's just so confusing at this point in the film where I'm like turning back and forth where I'm like, what the fuck, Scarlett? Like, what do you want? Like, yeah. I don't get it. it, it it's, I, yeah, it's one of those things I don't know what to make of it. It's a very controversial scene. It's, it's uncomfortable, you know, to especially for a character like Rhett, because I was saying to you before we started recording, most of my favorite lines from this movie come from Rhett. My, like I loved Rhett. Like, and Oh yeah. I love them too. Like literally I, up until this moment, yeah. just like, no, I, why'd you do this? I, I still like him after that. And it, which is, it's, it's uh, again, that, that's why I preface the whole scene as like, I, I don't know how to talk about this because it it's uncomfortable. It's, it's extremely complicated one because they're married, she's they make her seem like she's so happy in the beginning, or at the at the next morning after it. 
she does has no sex throughout the rest of the film. There's this is the really the only kind of sex thing that happens, and it's uh, it. I'm like pulling my hair because of it because I don't know like what to make of it, and I don't know how to properly respond. Besides that, this is what happened, and and this yeah. is kind of kind of like what we have to take away from it. Um, it's something that's like so nuanced, and that you could like literally make an entire feature length film uh, based around like marital rape and like kind of like analyzing both sides of the situation and just seeing how like disturbing it is but it's literally done so quickly because at this point you can clearly tell that the film is just like running on two times speed it's like yeah. holy shit like this movie's getting way too long like we need to speed this up speed up their relationship like everything is times two to kind of get us and drive us to the very kind of end and, and that's why i don't love the second half because they yeah speak. i see that yeah. i could see that aspect of it like it, it's just so, they pack so it's the first half is an hour 45 ish and then the second half is is two hours and it's just they pack so much into it this is like even this there's so much that i feel like we haven't that we haven't touched on there's so many like little things and it's just we can't and but these like bigger picture ideas are are what's driving this episode of the podcast and and it's a huge deal. It's a huge deal that you had a leading guy do this. And yeah, it wasn't looked at like uh, probably 1939. All the guys were like, yeah, she just needed a good fucking and she's better now. Yeah, that's just the way they make it seem, honestly. So, yeah. So, uh, so but moving on um, to what happens next in the movie. So the next day, Red apologizes for his behavior and offers Scarlett a divorce, which she rejects, uh, saying that it would be a disgrace to her family. And Rhett is like, nah, I, I really don't think I did. I didn't do a right thing. I think we should get a divorce. And he's like, I'll give you whatever you want. But the one thing I ask is for Bonnie. Yeah, he's apologetic. And he's just like, you know, all I really care about is her. Like, I I could see her. She was like you. Like, before, when I first met you, you were this, like, uh, perfect, like, innocent person who, like, just didn't really fully understand the world and, like, see the darkness of it. So he's clearly just so upset by this relationship he's like trying to apologize for last night for what like the horrible acts that he did and he's just so broken apart that he just thinks and knows that this needs to end and it's the only like successful way out to kind of keep um sanity and keep bonnie still in both of their lives yeah so red uh him and bonnie go to london but bonnie uh she starts having nightmares and starts crying for her mother and you can see, Rhett seems like actually a very good dad. He seems he he yells at um, the nanny in London because the, she had shut off the lights and Bonnie does not like being in the darks. And Rhett, you know, is very you know he's very comforting to her. He's he seems like a, a very good father to her. And um, but they return and so they return to the trip and Scarlett informs, uh, I almost said Peter thinking about Clark Gable from It Happened One Night, but it's Rhett. Uh, he informs Scarlett that. She Scarlett informs him that she is pregnant, uh, but an argument ensues, which results in her falling down a flight of stairs and suffering a miscarriage. Uh, so two things: one, she literally he literally says you could just have an accident right now, and be rid of the baby, and then she goes to slap him because that's her move. She always tries to slap people, and she falls down these stairs, and it's the set of stairs. I think plays a huge motif because it's this big red staircase in the house. It's where he carries her up the stairs when he goes to rape her she falls down the stairs she sits on the stairs to meet bonnie when they return um and there, it happened there's a few more times with the stairs but the stairs the, in several sequences but specifically in this new house with uh with Rhett and scarlet it plays a huge role 
this is i literally gasped when this happened while i was watching it just because i did not expect them to go that far like having a miscarriage is so intense and the fact that this has happened in a film in 1939 alone like someone had a miscarriage let alone she had a miscarriage from falling down stairs during an argument with red her husband like that was so intense and it was so unpredictable and like i really loved it just because of how unpredictable it was and how like disturbing like i already thought we reached the climax of their relationship like rape you would think would be like the ultimate tragic thing that would happen in their relationship but no it just like keeps amplifying and getting worse and worse and it's so disturbing and and my second point is these must be the most fertile human beings on the planet where they just have sex once and they immediately <laughs> get pregnant like, yeah it, well it's movie <laughs> you know <laughs> it's, it's a movie and that's just how it happens um yeah it's very it 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 comes out of nowhere. It's very out of left field. I know in the book she has several children. I think with each of the marriages. So, um, so it's odd that. Well, I guess it may also make sense that she has these. Um, in, in the movie Scarlet, she has this miscarriage, and it's, it's awful. And you actually get a very. And this is probably one of my favorite uh, performances uh, or moments from the movie. And it's with Clark Gable, and he he has his head down, so you don't see his face, and you can tell he's just for days. He's been in fucking agony that he he hurt his wife. He still loves Scarlet. There's still a love there, that, at least for him. And he when he lifts his head up, you can just his eyes are bloodshot. There's water. You know his tears are dropping down out of his eyes. He's has that five o'clock shadow. It, it's it's a very you, you can just tell that to get that emotion and that look. He went to a very deep place. I'm sure to to get that reaction. And it's a very very effective and and it really plays into. Um, and he still loves Scarlet and Melanie. Uh, Melanie comes in as the voice of reason and, and and talks to him and and tries to talk him out of it and tries to say like it will be okay, everything will be fine because Melanie is a sweet little naive angel that she is. And uh, yeah, so but she walks in and Mammy is the one who like breaks everything down for her, right? So this is where it's. So this is that was before. So. So there are two. She goes up to yeah, Brett. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. The, so she like breaks the no, situation down, right? No, 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 no. That you're getting ahead of yourself. So as she, so as Scarlett's recovering, tragedy strikes when Bonnie dies while attempting to jump a fence with a pony. So that's so Scarlett gets Melanie to come over, and well, Mammy really gets um, Melanie to come over because Rhett has had locked himself in the room with Bonnie's dead body recovering and that's when man that's right that's okay, when man okay. so we just skipped over a, a huge moment in the film which is when bonnie dies i mean is it a huge moment it's a, like it's a huge moment because it it's, it, her death is not a huge moment like the ramifications from her death is right, a huge moment yeah right 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 because it, like the death happened so quickly and again it, i found it goofy like i don't know what it is about people falling off horses but it was just really funny and like stupid and like her horse just like takes off and like runs into a fence. Like, I don't know. Yeah. Well, I don't know. Yeah. It, it's sad. So, uh, the whole, so the whole second half when Bonnie is growing up and she's still a little baby and you know, you have Rhett constantly be like, I'm going to get her a pony and he gives her lessons. He, you know, they jump over like a, a little, like five inch, like jump, like, like you know, training yeah. Training her. And, her yeah. and she starts to be, she starts to show her Scarlet side, her Harris side, her I'm not going to fucking listen to you side. And so she goes up and she's like, look at me. I'm going to go jump. And that's when Scarlet and Red are like, you really shouldn't do that, honey. Please don't go do that. And she still goes to do that. And 
and um, Scarlet goes, oh, she's just like Pa. And then she goes, just like Pa, because Pa, her father, had jumped over a fence and died and broke his neck himself. And yep. you know, at the beginning of the just film. Just like him. Yeah. And, and even at the beginning of the film, they talk about that. You know, Scarlet and her father, their first interaction, um, their first thing she says to him is like, you ride craziness. And he's like, oh, I don't really care. I'll break my neck if it happens. So, and she's like, all right, we'll do what you want. And that's when this pops up again, where she doesn't want people to do what they want. She wants to have this control over people's life. She realizes she can have this control. Yeah, it's her daughter, but she still wants that control. And uh, yeah, and Bonnie dies. It's uh, it's tragic. It it's it's. Uh, I actually saw. I've seen it in one other film where that kind of scene happens. That happens in a movie called Barry Lyndon. Have you? I don't know if you've ever seen that. No, I've never seen that Kubrick. Film. Yeah, it's a it's a great Kubrick film. If you haven't seen it, great cinematography in that, and has a very similar thing. And and it held. And and that was I felt was more emotional than this. Um, you'd have to watch that film to understand why. But this has that same emotion. So we get this. Scene. So now, so Bonnie's dead. Rhett won't come out of the room of her dead body. It's been a few days now. And so now Melanie comes over again. And Mammy's the one that answers the door. And this is, it's a little bit of too much exposition that Hattie McDaniel is given. You can tell this is one of those things where, like, we can't, like, we can't show all this, but we're just going to have Mammy say all this. So basically, Mammy tells Melanie, um, Bonnie broke her neck and died. Rhett went out and grabbed a gun and shot the pony immediately. And she thought that Rhett was going to kill himself. Rhett and Scarlet go at each other and, and start yelling, trying to place blame. And, and then he takes the body and, and sat in the room with her and won't, and won't leave. And she says the most tragic thing to me, which uh, again, I was crying again for like the 10th time in this movie. And she says he won't leave her because he doesn't want to leave Bonnie in the dark. Which is a, a huge emotional, just like oh my god, what a a delivery and a line, and um, and and again, this is one of those scenes where Hattie McDaniel showing her her chops and showing that Mammy has has an emotional side, and she's more than just you know being Mammy. Yeah, Mammy's proud to. She was very proud to raise uh, Bonnie. She even said, you know, I've, I've put diapers on three generations of this family. She's so of women on this family. Yeah, yeah, women in this family. She's so happy and she loved Bonnie. You can tell there was a true love right there. And Bonnie probably loved her just as much. And um, but that's gone. And so they're walking up the staircase while doing all this. It's all in one shot. It's one long tracking shot. And it's a very good sequence between Olivia de Havilland and Hattie McDaniel. And this is probably a this is probably the scene that really secures it outside of like her facial emotions. But this was a, this was a great emotional scene from, from Hattie. Yeah. This is the scene that they would show at the Oscars and be like, the, here's the nominated best supporting actresses. And like would show that scene of her uh, kind of like breaking down and crying. Yeah. It's, it is really emotional, but yeah, it, it felt so forced and it felt like a screenwriter trick of being like, we don't have time to explain all of these things. So we're just going to have like one character break everything down for you really quickly, make it really emotional, powerful show like Melanie, all these things that have happened between them, why they're so broken and at like such a fragile moment of time. And yeah, it's also an amazing shot. So it's like, I don't, I don't care. It's yeah. a great performance. That old age makeup, like we talked about is, is kind yeah. of weird. <laughs> yeah, it is. Uh, but uh, yeah, it's a, it's a great performance by Hattie. Yeah. It, it's a good scene. And then she convinces Rhett to let them bury Bonnie. Um, and then Melanie collapses and, we don't know why Melanie collapses. Um, it could have, uh, it could have been complications from a new pregnancy, but that's never really said. 
Um, it, there's just all these things with Melanie's health. She's just sick. Yeah, she's yeah. kind of like just weirdly sick throughout the film and random moments. Yeah, so the so we're getting towards the end of the film. This is the second to last scene. Um, so Ashley and Rhett, uh, Scarlett and Rhett, excuse me, go to visit Melanie. And you have this huge emotional scene between uh, Scarlett and Melanie. Melanie's telling her, you know, you please look after Ashley. Like, you know, do, you know, like you were a good person to me and Rhett loves you. Like be kind to Rhett, do all these things for Rhett. And, um, and then Ashley and Scarlett consoles Ashley and then Melanie dies. A few things to unpack here really quickly. Um, it's sad that Melanie is dead. Uh, you get to see some real good emotions from Olivia to Haviland. Uh, it, she gives a great performance. Um, but then Scarlett does what I found what I find really despicable, which is she she goes to Ashley to console herself, really. And she kind of takes away the moment from Ashley to really say goodbye to Melanie because all, all of a sudden they're calling for Ashley and she's and Melanie has died clearly. And so Scarlett took that moment away where he could have been with her. He could have been with Melanie. And Scarlett is basically being consoled by Ashley. They don't know what to do. They, you can tell that, like, again, that's that whole, like, she's trying to fall back in that trap of, like, getting Ashley. And Rhett sees all this. And after Melanie literally begged her, she's like, please just be kind to Rhett. Please just, you know, he loves you, he, blah, 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 blah. And the first thing she does is completely ignore him. And go right to Ashley go right again, to Ashley. completing the circle once again of just showing her true alliances to this man. And it's almost her last attempt to kind of go back for Ashley. Like, he is now the person who lost the love of his life with Melanie, and he's just all alone. And now is like, the perfect time for her to sweep in. So Scarlet realizes that Rhett isn't there. Uh, Rhett had left, and she's running after him saying, like, you know, Rhett, come back, Rhett, 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 Rhett. And Rhett uh, is preparing to leave for Atlanta from uh, where they are near Tara. And basically, uh, yeah, like, I'm not going to be with you anymore. And I don't want to because you loved Ashley. You lied to me this whole time. And she starts to beg and plead. She hasn't realized that she truly loved Rhett this whole time and not Ashley. Uh, She pleads with Rhett. uh, And he rebuffs her and walks her way into the morning fog. And then a distraught Scarlet returns home to Tara, vowing to one day one rep back so the ending of of course another uh, obviously the frankly my dear don't give a damn and then of course we have the again another monologue professing to the audience or professing to herself or professing to god whoever it is um that she knows who she loves she knows what home is she will go back to tara and that'll lead to her getting rep back yeah so first let's break down what is considered the most iconic line of all time in movie history um i know afi puts out these top 100 100 lists and they have that line as the number one so scarlet go she's basically she's running down the stairs this is where the stairs come again she's running after Rhett. she's going down and she's trying to get him she's and she goes Rhett, where shall i go what shall i do and i uh so the line is frankly my dear i don't give a damn which is when you hear it out of context, you don't really know like what's going on, but then knowing the context of it and knowing why he's saying that, and the, and the, even they got this, they got the permission to say the word "damn," which was not an acceptable word from the Hayes uh, production code, and so it's a it's a great, it's so famous, so iconic, and I think it's one of the best delivered lines I've ever seen. It's such a 
such a powerful thing. I mean, like, yeah, like he's telling her to fuck off. You know, you don't love me, but just the way he says it, frankly, my dear, I don't give a damn. I think it's so great just because of the context. Like we are right there with the rat. We're like, I'm done. Scarlet, you had your chance. You're done. This is the last. I'm tired of your bullshit. Like you need to just be shut down and you just need to be alone and just like realize what it actually means to be alone and stop using everyone around you for your own personal gain. And so it's so redeeming in that manner why she loves Rhett all of a sudden and like wants to be with him and how she realizes that I, that's not really clear to me which is kind of an issue because this is what's ending our film and this is ending her big emotional arc and why she wants to go back to Rhett like but she wants to go back to Tara I don't know how that's going to bring Rhett back she wants to make sure her home is together I don't know if there's a loose ends here it's well it's the whole idea that that Tara gives her power that Tara is is the ultimate that land is the only thing that lasts and 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 having that would hopefully bring Rep back. I mean, we don't know how, how that ultimately would come to form, um, but she ends the whole movie with the line "Tomorrow is another day," which I think is, which again is extremely emotional. Uh, I, I was crying again at the end of the movie because you just had this huge emotional scene. You have again that big silhouette swell shot of pulling out revealing Tara behind Scarlet. She's standing alone. She's proudful of herself. And she's saying to her, just to herself, tomorrow is another day. Tomorrow I'm going to be able to win Rep back. Tomorrow I'll be able to bring Tara back to its glory. Tomorrow I'll be able to do this and do that. And um, it's it's extremely powerful. It's uh, it, it's a good way to end the film. It's, a, it's, it's highly emotional. Again, I can imagine people in 1939 just completely going nuts going oh my god what a way to end the movie it, it, it caps off this epic performance from vivian lee um and it's very it again the emotions just run so high and it ends a movie that is so complicated and so i, I mean I, i've had a ton of fun talking about it and 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 really researching and diving into it and there's so much to talk about this film um, um i think we've we've really taken the context and the history behind the, the film and the production and added more to it. Um, there's, there's still so much behind the production that was crazy that was going on, just the amount of things they had to do using Technicolor. I mean, for filming the whole burning of Atlanta, they had to use like seven, all seven Technicolor films that even existed in LA at the time. So this is just a huge production. There's so much to take out of it. Um, John, upon ending the film, is there anything that like we haven't discussed you really want to talk on or is just like final thoughts to tie everything together? Yeah, nothing that I don't think we missed majorly. This may be the longest conversation about Gone with the Wind yeah, ever. Uh, I hope that's the case. That would be really cool. Um, I just essentially wanted to end saying just how open-ended uh, of an ending this is. It's by far the most open-ended film that we've seen winning uh, the best outstanding production and it's significant i think this film is so significant not only for you know representing women having this strong female lead character who's so complicated she's not perfect she's not like has this perfect like complete story that you like are just completely satisfied with in a way where you're satisfied and it makes sense and her arc is kind of completely finished she like finally learns her lesson by literally being rejected at the end and that is kind of her arc in a way where it's just like she finally becomes independent and even though that's someone else 
doing that and it's not really her actions it's caused by her actions and it's caused by her stupidity of just constantly chasing what she can't have because she thinks she needs that and for that to be a character on screen let alone like winning best picture compared to every other film that we've seen so far it's not only the most complex character that we've seen so far it's obviously some of the most beautiful cinematography it's this gorgeous color we have all these amazing amazing other performances like Clark Gable and it's just such a powerful and interesting story that uh, it was so compelling to me throughout. Yeah, I, I completely agree. Um, there's, uh, there really isn't, I think we, we have touched on everything. My brain feels like a mush because we've like talked to so many points that I've been like, that we have been trying to file and organize in our heads. And um, I hope a lot of this made sense to people <laughs> like the, you know, this we, cause we did this differently talking about it literally through the story as it was going, bring up all our points there. There's so much more to talk on and discuss. If you ever want to talk to us about it, you know, email us at worthy submissions at gmail.com. You can follow us on Instagram, on Twitter, Facebook, contact us. If there's more that we didn't touch on, uh, we probably didn't do enough service to a ton of other aspects of this film that uh, deserves. Hollywood, Mr. And Mrs. Audience, Hollywood, the magical Mecca movie land. Fountainhead of the celluloid fantasies whose shining shadows flicker around the full circumference of our troubled world. Hollywood, where science and sorcery combine to brew their magic broth of thrills and chills, of laughter and tears, for audiences like you totaling 250 million people a week. For it is to you, Mr. and Mrs. Audience, that all Hollywood is dedicated. For you, little Tommy Ticket Buyer, do some 70,000 Hollywood workers exert their labors, their brains, their witchcraft. But I wonder, little Mary Matinee, if you know who is most sought after in all the busy bedlam of Hollywood. Who? I. I am the most frantically sought person in cinema land. I, Oscar the Academy Award. The 12th Academy Awards were held on February 29th, 1940, in the Coconut Grove at the Ambassador Hotel in Los Angeles. It was hosted by Bob Hope, his first of 19 turns as a host. This is a especially special Academy Awards this year, as Frank Capra was the Ampass president at the time and decided to film it and sell the rights to Warner Brothers. Now, because of Frank Capra's involvement and uh, his contributions to Ampass, I wanted to give a little bit more history of really just his whole run, five-year run, as the Ampass president. In October of 1935, Frank Capra was elected Ampass president. He had been a high-ranking member of the Academy's director's branch since 1931, serving on a wide range of organizations' planning committees at the end of 1935, just coming off of his first Best Picture win and Best Director wins. Capra was an ideal figurehead. Capra was instrumental in the Academy's policy changes through the period of his administration, which ended in 1939. One of his first moves as president was expanding the publicity department by hiring new people to specialize in handling awards coverage. That year, Ampass also first commissioned Price Waterhouse, a firm of public accountants, to count and verify all ballots and squelch any future claims of voter fraud. The company has remained the accounting partner for the Academy Awards until even present day. On February 16th, a week before the 12th Academy ceremony and following a canceled meeting with AMPP head Joseph Schneck, the Guild Board of Directors formally proposed a boycott of the awards at the emergency meeting. 
Capper would immediately resign as president of the academy and withdraw as masters of ceremonies. The guild would then institute a studio-wide director's strike following the event. The next morning, the Hollywood Reporter's front page read, The Screen Directors Guild last night moved to force an immediate showdown with the producers in the 18-month battle over recognition and a basic agreement. An ultimatum was issued to the producers, demanding that they sign a contract by 8 o'clock that night or accept the consequences. The reorganization of Ampass prioritized the Hollywood workforce. This is perhaps nowhere better seen than its new voting rules which allowed all union membership to take part in the ballot for outstanding achievements and made the Oscars a true celebration of Hollywood by those in Hollywood. Monica Sandler, University of California, Los Angeles. So Ben, we're starting to see the Hollywood kind of structure and organization grow and grow so much that the Academy is kind of getting a crosshair over them. And it's becoming so big and notable that we're starting to see a huge group of people that are just completely unrepresented in the academy. So I'm curious, what, what are your opinions now? We, we talk about unions and uh, the director's union kind of coming together, the director's guild coming together and trying to force more participation so it's not more of a insider's group. So how do you feel about all this different history with Frank Capra leaving as well as it being the first film show? This is a pretty big deal. Yeah, it's extremely a big deal. This is a this is a huge ceremony uh, at the Twelfth Academy Awards for several reasons, and and this being one of them, the the landscape of filmmaking has really be. I honestly think because of Gone with the Wind was like the the straw that broke the camel's back in terms of in terms of how everyone saw the Academy, how everyone felt that productions could be you know be done going forward. So there's just the landscape has changed and it it's changed even today in 2021 in, in many different ways. So this is just like that, this one mark in history, but it's a pretty important mark. And uh, it, it it's great to get these unions together to really represent Hollywood, even though it's still not exactly representing Hollywood, uh, but it, it, tr- it tries to do better. And I know we talked about going back to the first episode that Louis B. Mayers and, and all the founders of Ampass, they, they had this idea to bring everyone together to award them, but that was also a reaction to stop you know unions, to, to fight against what people were rebelling against the studio system. So this is just a way that we're breaking away from the studio system and we're, tr- and we're giving filmmakers and, and their crew members every opportunity to, to do more and be creative. So it's, it's a great initiative uh, and, and it's great to see Capper being the one heading, uh, spearheading that and uh, seeing some progress moving forward. Not completed progress, but some progress moving forward. Yeah, this was really special for us because we've been doing these now, and so far the Academy Awards have been kind of closed off, and we haven't been really able to see them, mainly really just kind of getting some random uh, literature and just kind of learning through those experiences of what the actual nights were like, some photos here and there as well. So being able to watch a huge chunk of the show, uh, about 18 minutes that you can find on YouTube of of the 12th Academy Awards was, was really something special to be actually able to first see the awards now, to see people kind of dressed in their nice gowns and jewelry. And, and when Warner Brothers obtained the rights, they spent actually $30,000 at the time. And cinematographer Charles Rosher was the one who kind of shot and organized the entire shoot of that night. And 
it's really special just because you know the academy awards is just so known for showing off and being glamorous and you know who has the best dress of the night who's wearing their their nicest tux or who's doing the most new and like unique outfit of the night which has been such a prominent part of the oscars and the academy awards and this is kind of where we're starting to feel that where variety and these publications are really putting a crosshair on this kind of event and it's becoming so big that all these people are kind of tuning in to watch and with all these big stars there knowing that they're on camera it's not just about being an actor anymore it's about you know going beyond that and trying to represent your figure beyond just the the motion pictures that you're in so I thought it was really cool to kind of see this and go through and see some of the great awards that we're about to go through yeah it's a great insight it gives uh it's a good firsthand account of, of that ceremony you get to see most of the awards given out, they don't show Best Picture being given out, but I think that's really because if you watch that ceremony, it's so emphasized, Gone with the Wind, Gone with the Wind, Gone with the Wind, that you know Gone with the Wind is going to win, but it's it's great to see it's great to see how the ceremony was done, how, how it was all set up. You know, we got to experience most recently the 93rd Academy Awards, which is a much more intimate setting, and, and that really did make some big callbacks to these early ceremonies, so... Having video footage of the 12th Academy Awards, it's, it's available to everyone. It's really cool. You get to see, it feels like you're seeing everyone in the flesh, even though it's still a film in its own way. Uh, and you get to see some of the most important things to ever happen in film history. And the number one of those being Hattie McDaniel's win. Uh, it is, it's, it's great archival footage. I'm really happy that the Academy has it on their YouTube page that we have been able to watch it, that we can discuss it and, and, and everyone can and watch it themselves to to see what the Academy Awards was like and where it came from. And it uh yeah, it was a pretty big ceremony. It's it's a big milestone in the history of filmmaking. And uh, I think that we should just dive right into the twelfth Academy Awards. This is also a great year for the Oscars as we officially see the addition of visual effects added now as an award. We also have the split of cinematography splitting between black and white and color with the introduction of so many color films. And, a very important note, we've talked previously about how in 1934 we have mentions of Bette Davis mentioning the Oscars, there's an Academy Academy librarian, Margaret Herrick, who kind of mentioned the word Oscar, and journalist Sidney Skolsky, who mentioned Oscar, but it's now official in 1939 that the Academy is mentioning Oscar, and Oscar is officially part of the Academy history in their own eyes now. So we get to see that fun, awesome nickname. So there's just so many exciting things that happened this year at the Academy Awards, and of course it's with Gone with the Wind being yeah. the outstanding production. There's just so much to this year. Yeah, and, and like the additions of the cinematography, or the splitting of the cinematography categories is huge, probably reaction to Gone with the Wind. And yeah, I guess now on this podcast, we can start saying the word Oscar and it actually makes sense for the historical context. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. Uh, But let's jump right into it and jump into an award that was given out that that has been stopped for many years. And that's the Academy Juvenile Award. And that year it went to Judy Garland for The Wizard of Oz. And I would probably have to uh, safely assume that had Gone with the Wind not come out that year that Wizard of Oz probably would have taken many of the categories and Judy Garland may have even won Best Actress but because they kind of had that out for the Juvenile Award uh, it went to Judy Garland and I think we could go we could talk for days about Judy have Garland have a three hour podcast have a whole, about Judy exactly, Garland and, and Wizard just, of Oz exactly and talk about this whole like tragic life that she did have 
And going back to that video clip in the, in the film that Frank Capra put together for the ceremony, you get to see Judy Garland at this. She's like 16 years old, I'm pretty sure. And she's sitting next to Norma Shear. And you can see just this, this little girl who's just like full of, of life and happiness. And, oh, my God, I'm part of Hollywood. I'm, I'm freaking Dorothy from Wizard of Oz. Like, there's so many great things. And then coming it now from this modern viewpoint, it, it's tragic and sad to look at at the same time. And uh, my heart broke a little bit while seeing that. But also, I think it's great that the Academy took the made the effort to give her this juvenile award to recognize, yeah, you were really great in Wizard of Oz and um, unfortunately won against Gone with the Wind this year. Yeah, like I said, there's so much to talk about Wizard of Oz. I think we mentioned it a little bit in our conversation, but it's it's an iconic classic film that we could talk on and on about, and Judy Garland's magnificent performance is just will inspire hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years from now, so... Moving on to the Irving G. Thalberg Memorial Award, of course, goes without saying that it's David O. Selznick who takes that award. Yeah, so the we this is, I think, the second year of the Thalberg Award, and it goes to the, probably the most deserving person alive at that time, and this Selznick who, who literally took the whole entire idea of Gone with the Wind and made it a film, and it, it really is his film. It's a producer's film, like we said before, and uh, he was honored very... Uh, appropriately uh, some other academy academy honorary awards that were given out that year uh, they went to douglas fairbanks for recognizing the unique and outstanding contributions of, Doug, of douglas fairbanks senior first president of the academy awards to the international development of the motion picture it also went to the motion picture relief fund acknowledging the outstanding services to the industry during the past year of the motion picture relief fund and its progressive leadership it was presented to gene hersholt President Ralph Morgan, Chairman of the Executive Committee Ralph Block, and First Vice President uh, Conrad Nagel. Uh, so this is actually an, an honorary award that was given at the 93rd to the Motion Picture Relief Fund with their efforts for the COVID-19 pandemic. So it's interesting to see that it's been given out twice. And Gene Herschel gets his own humanitarian award named after him later on. There are also two more that were given specifically to uh, Gone with the Wind. Uh, one went to William Cameron Menzies for outstanding achievement in the use of color for the enhancement of dramatic mood in the production of Gone with the Wind. And then went to the Technicolor Company for its contributions in successfully bringing three color feature production to the screen, which we talked about at the beginning of the first part of Gone with the Wind of, our, of Worthy. And uh, it goes about saying that without Technicolor, this film would not be the same. Best special effects goes to The Rains Came. E.H. Hansen and Fred Serson. Now, this is the third time that technically special effects award was given out because we have in the first Academy Awards Wings, known for its amazing fight scenes and uh, acrobats in the air while you're uh, attaching cameras on planes and have all these different stunts and actors actually in the planes. So many cool, awesome stunts. But that was given for an engineering effects, kind of like a special award that's not a consistent category, but something given to honor the effects of that time or the engineering effects. Now we also have that from the 11th Academy Awards from Spawn of the North, but now in the 12th Academy Awards we have the official concrete locking of best special effects as a permanent category. And the Rains Came was recognized for its work involving recreating earthquakes and floods. Best film editing went to Gone with the Wind to Halsey Kern and James E. Newcomb. Uh, this was Kern's and Newcomb's first Oscar Kern would go on to be nominated for Rebecca and Since You Went Away 
and Newcomb was nominated as well with Kern for uh, for the film since he went away. Uh, so probably a very deserved Oscar, I would think, for Gone with the Wind. It went up against Mi- Go- Goodbye, Mr. Chips. Mr. Smith goes to Washington. The Reigns came in stagecoach. And uh, Gone with the Wind definitely deserves it because it, that whole the whole storytelling is predicated on how great the film was edited and all the mats and, and different, uh, what was it? The glass that they used as backgrounds you were saying. So just the little intricacies really made it a great edited film. It was also just daunting just how long that film was. I'm, I they had to turn around quickly also. Yeah. In the documentary, there was a moment where I think they were interviewing Hal and they had a bunch of cool, like behind the scenes shots of him. And he was like at one point, like holding up reels and reels of just loose film. Like it was just probably overwhelming how much they had to edit. And, uh, in the kind of final week of editing, he said that he was probably working 23 hours and, uh, in, in a day, one day alone's work was about an hour of sleep. And he went to his doctor and, his doctor basically called Shell's Nick and was like, give this man a break. He's like literally going to die because of you. Um, so yeah, just a yeah. little fun story. People bled for Shell's Nick to make this film. Yeah. And it's like, is it right that he gets this big award? But in a way, yeah, he created this huge important piece of work, Yeah, but not as clean as you may uh, hope films to be made. Yeah, exactly. So, but this is the first award along with the two honorary awards, but this is the first, official Oscar will say that Gone with the Wind gets. Best cinematography color goes to Gone with the Wind, Ernest Haller and Ray Renahan. Renahan won two Oscars in this category, winning for Blood and Sand with Ernest Palmer. He's one of six cinematographers to have a star on the Hollywood Walk of Fame. Haller was nominated seven times in this category, winning once for Gone with the Wind. Some of his nominees include Jezebel, Mildred Pierce, Whatever Happened to Baby Jane and Lilies of the Field. Yeah, so something that I also wanted to point out that I noticed while going through winners of the Color Cinematography Award is that it's always two people who get nominated. And I don't know if that's because one goes to the colorist and one goes to the actual director of photography themselves. There is no distinction ever listed for why there's always two. But for Best Cinematography Color nominations, there's always two people being nominated so just something to keep in mind best cinematography black and white went to Wuthering Heights to Greg Toland uh this is Toland's it's his first and only win out of six nominations Toland's films Johnny you ready for this for what they include oh I'm ready Citizen Kane The Grapes of Wrath and The Best Years of Our Lives so we have the guy who filmed and created some of the best cinematography for Citizen Kane, a movie that was essentially recreated by uh, David Fincher for the movie Mank, which came out this year. Uh, Toland's innovations include the use of depth of field and going away from the shallow looks of previous cinematographers. It was Toland who devised a remote control system for focusing his camera lens without having to get in the way of the camera operator who would now be free to pan and tilt the camera. Uh, His unique lighting setups completely was is what really drove Citizen Kane. Uh, that film is beautifully shot. It one of the best cinematography uh, jobs ever, and uh, I think we could probably rave and rave about Toland. But just knowing alone that that's the guy who filmed Citizen Kane and the best years of our lives. What do you think of that? Just right off the bat, John. Well, those are all like just beautiful black and white films that go without saying, and all of those have amazing like use of of shadow and light, especially Citizen Kane and the best years of our lives, which we'll definitely get to soon. 
Um, it's what really blew me away here is the fact that he made a system to kind of help with focusing, which is like, it's so funny to think about nowadays. And I could picture that device. Maybe it's mechanical or actually like operated with batteries. I doubt it at the time, but it's such a simple thing that no one thinks about, especially with just modern phones and having such amazing cameras that you just touch a screen and that's how you focus. The The thought of it being such a challenge that you, it was hard to kind of focus a camera lens while also moving it is is kind of crazy. And it's it yeah. really puts it into a lot of perspective when you look at like the cinematography of the films from this time. And it's like you're not playing the same game. Like the amount of tools that you have at your disposal nowadays, it's just it's a whole other ball game basically yeah what 100 percent uh the focus puller on sets are is extremely important uh even with gone with the wind there is definitely some times where some stuff could get out of focus and i guess for me and john like we can see it with our eyes and you can see how quickly someone has to oh shit i gotta rack focus or i gotta get back into there to get scarlet or and get red and so to have that like new system being used it makes it for a much easier process and even just better cinematography so uh thank you greg toland we bow our heads to you best art direction goes to gone with the wind lyle r wheeler this is wheeler's first of five academy awards in this category he would go on to win for anna and the king of siam the robe the king and i the diary of anne frank he was nominated for 29 times in 1951 he was nominated for four different films three in 1952 and twice for two films in one year so kind of a legend yeah wheeler really is he's a pretty legendary guy he uh and it also is not the most wins in this category we've said several times that cedric gibbons has that honor uh but yeah gone with the wind i mean let's talk about art direction i mean mean, mean, like art direction i mean that whole again that whole movie just the way everything is set up the way all the sets the 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 production design the whole feel the world of the of the film is so intricate and it's so important to get the story right and uh, it's 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 what drives the film in many ways because you believe the world is real. Architecture and the design of the buildings and the design of the South is one. It's it's really amazing to think about that this film was all shot in backlots. They never Selznick didn't even go to the South until the premiere of the film in Atlanta. Yeah. That was the first time he ever been to the South, and that was after the movie was done, edited, and it was premiering in Atlanta. So. It says so much that when you watch this film, you're like, this has to be shot in New Orleans, down south, like somewhere on a plantation. Like this is so natural and beautiful. And to know that it was all just kind of manipulated and that movie magic to disguise it all to make it look so big. And not only that, Gone with the Wind is so tied to its art direction. It's it's not only just tied because you're you're experiencing this lavish life and then losing it, but the story is so interconnected to their home and Tara and, and seeing the beautifulness of Tara and then watching it burn and this, like the husk of Tara. So it's like so important to gone with the wind and it definitely can't go unnoticed and yeah, definitely it, worthy. Yeah, exactly. And there's just like these little, these like little things that make each scene that much more, you know, make that much more rich and, and, and engaging, you know, you have just even the inclusion of like some animals in the scene, just to give it that, like that breath of life that, that, it really, yeah. Again, like it felt like that they went to a plantation in the south. That they were in Georgia actually filming. That they just went to someone's house and in some old mansion that was being maintained. And it, it feels real. It felt authentic, and uh, it's very well done. I just want to also point out that in this category, you had uh, nominees for Mr. Smith Goes to Washington, 
the rains came stagecoach and the wizard of oz and Wuthering heights as well so this was a pretty packed uh pretty packed category for that year best sound recording went to when tomorrow comes to bernard r brown this is uh bernard r brown's only win out of 11 nominations eight in the best sound recording category and three nominations in the best visual effects including a nomination for the invisible man returns in 1942 i threw that note in there because john loves the new invisible man and i thought he would get a kick out of that uh of that old film yeah the new invisible man rocks yeah i I know you love it (laughs) the original is very goofy it's a fun watch but yes but let me ask you now this uh gone with the wind did not get best sound recording and i actually think that that's okay that didn't get it um I th- did feel like at times the sound wasn't great. There were some, there were some off sound designs in the burning of Atlanta. Uh, some like the bombs dropping and stuff that didn't sound right. And I can say that because for all quiet on the Western front, we love the sound and we love some of the design with that and, and the war scene. So uh, gone with the wind did not get this one. Best song goes to over the rainbow from wizard of Oz music by Harold Arlen lyrics by Yip Harburg. Arlen would often carry blank pieces of music manuscript in his pockets to jot down melodic ideas. Arlen described how the inspiration for the melody to Over the Rainbow came to him suddenly while his wife, Anya, drove. I said to Mrs. Arlen, let's go to the Grauman's Chinese. You drive the car. I don't feel too well right now. I wasn't thinking of work. I wasn't consciously thinking of work. I just wanted to relax. And as I drove by the Schwab's drugstore in Sunset, I said, pull over, please. And we stopped, and I really don't know why. Bless the muses. And I took out my little bit of manuscript, and I put down what you now know as Over the Rainbow. The Over the Rainbow scene was directed by King Vidor after Fleming left the production. For what it is worth, it is the number one movie song on AFI's top 100 list of movie songs. Yeah, so, I mean, how iconic is Over over the Rainbow? It is, is, uh, in pop culture everywhere, there's a... There's a Pink Floyd album that references it. I have watched that scene so many times growing up and hearing that song, even still today, it, it brings tears to my eyes. It, it, it's certainly magical. It's, you know, when you think of movie songs, that's the song I think about certainly. And, and I think most people do because of just how it, how iconic it is. It, there's nothing more to, to say about it. I think besides just that it is, extremely iconic and I'm, and I'm happy that we have it yeah it's it's such a relatable song and that's I mean obviously it's so well performed by Judy Garland in the film and it's just so relatable in the way that we're always kind of wondering what's out there like what what could be possibly better or could the grass be kind of greener on on the other side so not only is it just such an amazing song but I think it's actually is quite relatable and and still very relevant even today yeah so if you have never listened to Over the Rainbow, stop this podcast right now and, and go listen. There's uh, something wrong with you. Yeah, you've never heard Over <laughs> the never, Rainbow? Yeah, it is. It, it's quite fantastic. Best original score went to The Wizard of Oz, Herbert Stoddard. This is Stoddard's one win out of 12 nominations. He composed the music for the Best Picture winners, Mutiny on the Bounty and Mrs. Miniver. Uh, so Gone with the Wind loses this one again, uh, Max Steiner's. And we talked... Really, we have such high praises to the music and and the movements of Gone with the Wind. It is a beautiful, beautiful score. But you are never going to beat The Wizard of Oz. I am so sorry, but you Gone with the Wind came out the wrong year at that time for the music. There's just too many bops on that soundtrack. Like, come on, they're all like you could literally sing almost every song in Wizard of Oz, and like 
how many musicals can you say that for? Not many. Yeah, no, not not many at all. It's uh, it's so it's just so iconic. And yeah, Gone with the Wind is just as iconic, but Wizard of Oz is just that much more. And this is the last award given out to Wizard of Oz for the evening. So it came away with the the two awards, score and song, and it also came away with the Academy Juvenile Award to Judy Garland. Best score goes to Stagecoach, Richard Hagman, W. Frank Harling, John Leopold, and Leo Shunkin. This is the second year of separation between the Best Original Score and Best Score. This is all the winners' first-time Oscar, and Stagecoach is a John Ford film. And Stagecoach is, is an iconic Western film that would go on to influence many, many Westerns throughout the 50s and 60s, um, and of course, obviously, the 40s, but... It's known specifically as well for its intense score that kind of guides you throughout the film, and it's very intense um, for all the kind of action scenes and has such a just iconic score that you know it totally makes sense why this would be the best score winner here. But it's not an original score like Wizard of Oz nope. or Gone with the Wind, and still that weird separation, and uh, it's just something that's going to keep on going. Moving on to best animated short film goes to The Ugly Duckling, Walt Disney Productions, and RKO Radio. Another one. Just keep on racking them up. So The Ugly Duckling was the last entry in the Silly Symphony series by Disney. It is based off the fairy tale by Hans Christian Andersen, and it is referenced heavily in Lilo and Stitch because Stitch feels like The Ugly Duckling, and that warms my heart sometimes because I just want to hold Stitch and hug him and say, you are my Ugly Duckling. Best live-action short film... Too Real goes to Sons of Liberty by Warner Brothers. This was directed by Michael Curtis, his first of two Oscars, and his second being Best Director for Casablanca. Yeah, can you, like, how many directors, I don't think, I think he's the only director to have a short film award and a Best Director award. I didn't look more into that, but off the top of my head, I can't think. Probably. Yeah, but I think that's probably, it's a very... Distinct honor, again, going, referencing the 93rd Academy Awards, uh, before they gave out the short film awards, they said that the people working on these short films today are the directors of tomorrow. So it's important to remember that short filmmaking is is extremely crucial and important uh, to just the world of filmmaking itself. Moving on to best live action short film, One Reel, and that went to Busy Little Bears, Paramount Pictures. Best screenplay goes to... Gone with the Wind, Sidney Howard, based on the novel by Margaret Mitchell. Sidney Howard is the first posthumous winner in the competitive category for screenplay. So this goes without, uh, you know, we can't go without uh, recognizing him. We talked about how he died in like a tragic uh, tractor accident, which is so unfortunate, not being able to see the final product of Gone with the Wind, but at least he gets the award passed to his family. Yeah, this is one of those uh, odd occurrences because everyone knew that multiple people worked on it. Ben Hecht was even nominated in this category for Wuthering Heights uh, for his screenplay, but yet Sidney Howard is the only person uh, given the actual screen credit. It could be because Sidney Howard had died and they wanted to give him that honor, uh, and he did write most of it. I, I, it really does feel like, the, from what we looked at in research, that most of the screenplay was still Sidney Howard's, but there was just like these little bits here and there, dialogue, little inserts that was done by other writers, but it's Sidney Howard's work. Uh, and referencing again that video of the 12th Academy Awards, they take a good moment to really uh, give that moment to Sidney Howard to honor him uh, it, for this win. Best story 
goes to Mr. Smith goes to Washington. Lewis R. Foster. This is the only win of two nominations for Lewis R. Foster. He was nominated for The More, The Merrier in 1944. And this is the only win out of 11 nominations for Mr. Smith Goes to Washington. I know you said that you had never seen Mr. Smith Goes to Washington. I have, and it's a it's a brilliant film. It's a great critique on American politics and American politicians. It, you know, it may seem a little weird and outdated today, but it has a very important message, and I think that it, it's an overall great film. And the again, the fact that it came out the same year as Gone with the Wind and The Wizard of Oz, and it had 11 nominations. It, it had everything working for it and against it at the same time. Uh, so, But it's great that I did get this one recognition, and it didn't have to compete with Gone with the Wind in this category, so that's probably why it won Best Story. Best Supporting Actress goes to Hattie McDaniel for Gone with the Wind as Mammy. Faye Banter presented the award for Best Supporting Actor and Actress, prefacing her presentation of the latter award with a knowing comment. It is a tribute to the country where people are free to honor noteworthy achievements, regardless of creed, race, or color. Hattie McDaniel became the first black performer to win an Academy Award, and in expressing her gratitude, promised to be a credit to my race before bursting into tears. De Havilland was among those to make her way to McDaniel's table to offer congratulations. Though it was reported that De Havilland then fled to the kitchen where she burst into tears. Yeah, so we have this extremely important moment in in just history. It, it's just history that Hattie McDaniel became the first black performer to win an Academy Award. It is an, it is an extremely emotional moment. It is in it it's important she is overwhelmed by the moment there is there has been criticism uh for her because she took these stereotype roles because she took the mammy characters because she was an academy award winner and would take lower build credits just to be on film but that's because she wanted to provide a life for herself she her both of her parents were slaves and i know that it can that's such a it's a huge controversy and it's upsetting to think about that this great performer had to do that to herself in order just to survive but at the same time she gave us a performance that looking back on it it is it's it's special the character mammy is it's it's a representation of what was awful but Hattie mcdaniel picked up her chin and and gave a great performance and and great emotional scenes and proved to be that foil to scarlet uh you know throughout time uh mcdaniel faced some of the worst kinds of prejudice and racism in the country uh the inequality she faced while being recognized an oscar Winner is truly disgusting. Um, again, we said she was forced to be stereotyped. And this, while researching, when she had died in nineteen in, in nineteen fifty two, her final wish was to be married was to be buried in the Hollywood Cemetery, and she was denied that. She was denied being buried in the Hollywood Cemetery because the graveyard was restricted to whites only. So Hattie faced restrictions and segregation when at the film's premiere. At the Academy Awards itself, yeah, the Academy Awards gave her the award, but they forced her to sit in the back of the whole room and it took Selznick to get her to move up a couple of tables to be closer to the cast to really do this, and she didn't get her last wish. Yeah, Olivia de Havilland was nominated in this category, and she was really great as Melanie. She gave a great nuanced performance and something that was sweet and emotional, but what Hattie gave was monumental and way more important uh, to just history itself. Yeah, it's like an amazing recognition, but at the same time, it's like highlighted by all the awful shit and her career after this point still being kind of like 
segregated for a lack of better words to a really just being a slave constantly and being kind of like the houseworker for the family. And her career was kind of gated still as that kind of woman. And I think when I was watching the behind the scenes documentary, this is like a perfect, perfect example of just the way black people were treated in the film industry. And it was about, um, it was about butterfly McQueen. And it was the scene where she was being slapped uh, by Vivian or Scarlett and, she essentially was like getting annoyed that she was actually getting slapped because it was hurting after so many takes that she was complaining to Shelznick about how just it was basically becoming too much for her. And at the time, Hattie McDaniel kind of pulled her to the side and was just like, you can't like, what are you doing? Like, that's not how this works. Like you're never going to be able to work again. Like you can't like push back like that. So I think it really shows just like how disturbing and just how awful and backwards everything is. Uh, for anyone who's in the black community in Hollywood. And it's it's disgusting that they wouldn't let her in a graveyard. Like, yeah. who cares? Like, you're, you're a body. Just put them in the ground. Like, yeah, it doesn't matter. It's extremely fucked up. And it again, like, that's not the only instance where there was questionable racism going on, on the set. There was a huge controversy of the bathrooms being segregated. And one of the extras actually went up to Clark Gable to say, like, hey, like, the bathrooms are segregated. Is there a way that maybe we can try and fix this? And the second Gable heard that, he went right to the heads of production and said, you don't have a red butler if you don't fix this. And immediately it was changed. And Clark Gable did that another time at the Atlanta premiere where he said he wouldn't attend if Hattie McDaniel was not allowed in, but she had convinced him to go. So it's great that Clark Gable was that voice of reason. And it's sad that he had to be that voice of reason. And it, it's still sad today. And um, I'm well, I'm just glad Hattie won. Well, you brought up the Atlanta premiere, so let's talk about that for a little bit. So I said it was the first time Shelznick was in the South, which is true. And even more depressing, since we're kind of on this topic, it, the theater that was shown in Atlanta for its premiere didn't even allow anyone who was black. So you have this film who then you would see Hattie McDaniel win, and it's supposed to be this monumental moment, but at the same time you have people that are black in America that can't even see the movie. They can't even see this woman who is supposed to be in this amazing monumental picture. Like it's, it's so fucked up. There's not much else to say, honestly. Yeah, it, it really is. And um, yeah, this, this film obviously doesn't escape the racism because of the stuff that happened on screen, but it certainly doesn't escape racism because of the stuff that happened off screen. Moving on to best supporting actor that year, it went to Thomas Mitchell in stagecoach. So Thomas Mitchell, he also was in Gone with the Wind as Gerald O'Hara, and he was also in Mr. Smith Goes to Washington as Diz Moore. So he's in three of the best movies that year, and he wins for Stagecoach. Uh, he also had made appearances in It's a Wonderful Life and the movie High Noon. This, so this is Mitchell's only Oscar win out of two nominations. He's also the first male actor to achieve the triple crown of acting, the, an Oscar, Tony, Emmy in the acting categories. And he's only 20, he's only one of 24 people to achieve this and 15 of them being women and the other nine being men. So he's making his own mark. And, um, but Thomas Mitchell, you don't get the same praise that we just gave Hattie McDaniel. Best actor goes to Robert Donat. Goodbye, Mr. Chips as Mr. Chips. Donat's one win of two nominations. Donat only appeared in 20 films. The 39 Steps being one of his most notable. He died at age 53 in 1958, becoming the first best actor born in the 20th century to die. He is also the shortest-lived best actor winner. This was broken 
in 2014 when Philip Seymour Hoffman died. Goodbye, Mr. Chips was directed by Sam Wood, who helped to direct Gone with the Wind. The film is about a school teacher and headmaster of a boarding school reflecting on his career. That sounds like an interesting movie. I'll check that out. Yeah, I definitely would check that out. Um, yeah, I think want to take a step back to, for that distinction of that he was the shortest lived best actor winner ever until Philip Seymour Hoffman. I remember where I was when Philip Seymour Hoffman died. And because I remember that so well, because my favorite football team got their ass kicked in the Super Bowl that same night. So that was one of the worst days of my life. But uh, Robert Donat did win. But he also went against Clark Gable for Gone with the Wind, Lawrence Olivier for Wuthering Heights, Mickey Rooney for Babes in Arms, and James Stewart for Mr. Smith Goes to Washington. We gushed over Clark Gable as Rhett in, in Gone with the Wind. And I actually think, John, if I had a vote, I would have given it to James Stewart. Wow. Why is that? I think that James Stewart really commanded that film. James Stewart, I'm pretty sure the next year in 1940, he gets his Oscar for uh, the Philadelphia story. So he does get it eventually. But he was really great in Mr. Smith Goes to Washington. He plays a typical Frank Capra, this like fantastical character that lives a different life than most people. But yet he's the, the person that everyone uh, wraps around that they see as this like great hero, as this great figure. And he really takes command of that film. It's a, extremely powerful. Again, the message of that film. And uh, if I had a vote, I would have picked it, picked him. And uh, I know there's even rumors and there's stuff that it came out in the newspapers the following days after the 12th Academy Awards, basically saying that Donat had only beat out Stewart by like the smallest of margins. So there might have been a world, a few people, if they had just voted differently for James Stewart, it could have happened, but it went to Robert Donat. Yeah, and that's something that we're kind of always wondering about is how far those numbers separate from each individual nominee and like how close the actual race was. So the Los Angeles Times is the one who kind of reported that and people got so upset because they really wanted James Stewart to win that it eventually led to the Academy officials to kind of examine the voting process and more importantly, the results. And from there on, all this, all the awards and all the winners were remained secret to avoid any kind of, uh, you know, reactions like this. Yeah. PricewaterhouseCooper has, uh, or it was Pricewaterhouse. Now it's PricewaterhouseCooper has, uh, really been at the forefront of Academy balancing and, and counting it. Although they made that humongous mistake, uh, for La La Land and Moonlight, um, a few years ago. Um, and yeah, it's, and I do, we had said it in our Oscar reaction episodes, the 93rd Academy Awards that we wish there was, the, the numbers were released. We wish there was some sort of idea so we know like how it all fell out. You know, I know that these awards at the end of the day are just supposed to be an honorary award to these filmmakers that it really, at the end of the day, doesn't mean much, but it's still a competitive thing. It's still something that people vote on. Uh, it would be nice to see numbers. And I guess for also our statistical minds, especially me, just to have those numbers to be like, oh, this person had this much, this person had that much. It just, it would add that nuance that I would love. Best Actress went to Vivian Lee for Gone with the Wind. Um, I want to give a little backstory first to Vivian Lee. I wanted to hold off talking about it through the film because uh, this felt like more the appropriate time to give her her due and because she lived, uh, again, like a tragic life similar to Judy Garland. Um, so this was Lee's first of two Oscars. She had won her second Oscar in 1952 for A Streetcar Named Desire. Lee had started out as a film actress in 1935 after graduating from drama school uh, in, in London. 
Uh, she was primarily a stage actress, though. During her 30-year career, she played roles ranging from the heroines of Noel Coward and George Bernard Shaw comedies to classic Shakespearean characters such as Ophelia, Cleopatra, Juliet, and Lady Macbeth. I w- Lee would be an amazing Lady Macbeth. I wish I could watch that and see that in, in person. By the age of 20, she was already married and had a child to Herbert Lee Holman. She had, began, she had begun an affair with Laurence Olivier in 1937 when they filmed Fire Over England, and that was the film that supposedly helped her get the role of Scarlet after, after David O'Selznick had watched it. She continued to work with Olivier. Their spouses knew about this and would not allow divorce, but they still lived together. Lee also started to show some signs of her bipolar disorder with different uh, mood changes while she was performing with Olivier on stage. During the film of Gone with the Wind, it was a, a demanding role out of her, and there were rumors of her manic actions even then, but to have Landy had debunked some of those rumors later on. Uh, later in life, Lee had contracted tuberculosis, causing a miscarriage, and really it opened up Olivier's and others people's you know, minds that she was dealing with bipolar. Her role in Streetcar on stage and film became the ultimate tipping point for her mental health. She divorced Olivier in 1960 after 20 years together. And she died on July 7th, 1967, at the age of 53, when her tuberculosis reappeared. And I wanted to talk about that because when you watch a performance like her in Streetcar and even in Gone with the Wind, you can see how much she had to go through. She is Scarlet. She had to go through so much in life. And it's it. what Hollywood does to some people is extremely tragic. It's, it's, un, it's unfair to some people's lives. And, and Lee is one of the victims of it. Um, she went through so much. I mean, think about it. Before she even did... Gone with the Wind, she had already been married and going this through this whole thing with Laurence Olivier. She had this stage career. She already had a child. And then at 25, you know, 24, 25, 26, she's filming and starring in one of the biggest productions ever in film history. And she deservedly gets this award. Um, we had mentioned before that she is the longest performer out of any of the acting categories at two hours and 23 minutes. She carries this film and it's an award that is extremely deserved. Yeah, she certainly does carry the film. We've talked so much about her amazing performance and how she defines Scarlet throughout the film. And, you know, looking at the competition here with Bette Davis, Greta Garbo, she's up against some real titans in the Best Actress category. And I think that even shows just how powerful of a performance that really kind of changed the industry and really, uh, really stuck with people. Yeah, 1,400 actresses were tried out or auditioned for the role of Scarlet. And the, the one English woman you know, got it. And it's, uh, it's extremely remarkable. Um, I really hope people continue to watch her films and, uh, and yeah. So thank you Vivian Lee for that performance. Best director goes to Victor Fleming for you guessed it gone with the wind. (laughs) Yeah. This is his only Oscar win. And we have to note that the other two directors are not included here. It's just given to Victor Fleming for gone with the wind. But Sam Wood, who was one of the directors for the film was nominated for Goodbye Mr. Chips that year, so he sort of gets his due. And I really do have to say that upon researching a lot about the movie and, and Victor Fleming, he seemed like a total dick. I re- That's the sense that I got, that he was not a great person to work with. And I know there's many directors who are like that. I don't know the guy, but it really seemed like that he was not a great person to work with and really... Um, really just force people to work and grind out this film. Outstanding production. The nominees were Worthing Heights, The Wizard of Oz, Stagecoach, Of Mice and Men, Ninochka, Mr. Smith Goes to Washington, Love Affair, 
Goodbye, Mr. Chips, Dark Victory, and the winner of the 12th Academy Awards for Outstanding Production goes to Gone with the Wind, David Oselznik for Oselznik International and Metro Goldwyn Mayer. Gone with the Wind is the first of 14 Best Picture winners to win eight or more Oscars. It held the record for most Oscars ever until From Here to Eternity in 1953 and On the Waterfront in 1954 tied it at eight, and then it was passed in 1958 by Gigi with nine. And then a year later, the all-time record was set at 11 for Ben-Hur, uh, which would then be matched by Titanic in 1997 and Lord of the Rings in 2003. So this is this is an extremely iconic film. It it made so many records at the Academy Awards, winning eight total out of thirteen nominations, eight deserved wins overall. And uh, yeah, so before we give our thoughts about what if this film is worthy and answer that question, let's go through some statistics and numbers uh, to give some perspective on the film. Gone with the Wind has a ninety one percent. On Rotten Tomatoes and the average Rotten Tomato rating is an 8.68. The audience score on Rotten Tomatoes is a 93. The average audience score rating is a 4.51. The IMDb rating is, is an 8.1 and it won eight awards out of 13 nominations. So, John, what did you give Gone with the Wind? I gave Gone with the Wind my highest score at a 90. And uh, for some comparisons, uh, my second highest now uh, is actually a tie, which is between Quiet on the Western Front at an 85, and it happened one night at an 85. So I thought about this a lot. This was really hard to kind of pinpoint a score. I kind of struggle with this always, but for me, this movie just has so much. It just has everything. It has great performances, beautiful cinematography, an amazing memorable score, a really interesting main character, a really kind of crazy story that's just all just nonstop really and of just how much that happens. And it just really has so much with love, friendship, lust, war, just so much happening in this film. And it's it's really engaging. It's the f- film that feels honestly the most modern in its storytelling. It's it's challenging the audience. It's it's everything I really want in a movie. While it's four hours and I could find O'Hara kind of frustrating with the her relationship with Melanie sometimes, and Melanie not knowing about Ashley, and and some some of those things can be frustrating. And you could kind of pick apart uh, some of the ending and how kind of the third act or really the last thirty minutes get so sped up and so much happens but this there's a reason why this film is so iconic and i think it's it's goddamn right that it's my my favorite so far yeah uh it's i wouldn't actually don't think it's my favorite so far but i still gave it a 93 and i think it's a 93 because while it does some pretty bad things with the contextualizing of slavery and just racism in general it still does so much for the film industry and is still so celebrated because of what it did for the film industry. And because there is a way to have a healthy discussion about this film. Many uh, people, film scholars, especially black film scholars will talk about this film with, with high praise. There is a lot to digest with this movie. It is not an easy film to just like, Hey, I'm going to watch this casually. You have to be ready uh, to really dive deep and to really understand that this movie is a reflection of the past, that it is a civilization like Gone with the Wind. Uh, and it, it's just great overall. It's beautiful. It is well acted. It is well directed. Um, and there's really not much more to say that 
we haven't already said before. So, John, is Gone with the Wind worthy of the Best Picture Award of 1939? Yes. Yes, 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 yes. If you haven't guessed it yet, we love this movie. It is certainly worthy of its award. It's one of the Best Picture winners that 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 really encompasses and really just it shows it as a best picture winner like that's the definition of it there's probably a handful of films like that uh to me the ones that come to mind are uh ben-hur lawrence of arabia lord of the rings return of the king and i'm gonna put titanic in there because of how big it was for that time uh, all those films achieve great things by winning tons of awards by being very long films all of them are at least three hours long so I don't know what that really says about what audiences like and what audiences think as a best picture winner, but the definition of a best picture winner starts with Gone with the Wind. Um, so yeah, that's that's it. That's our reaction to Gone with the Wind. There, I don't know, John. I don't think we have left a stone that wasn't uncovered by this film. Is there any last thing that you need that we feel like that we should discuss about Gone with the Wind that we haven't talked about yet? Well, Ben, frankly, my dear, I don't give a damn. <laughs> I knew I knew you were going to do that. So thank you to listening to this episode of Worthy. I'm Ben. And I'm John. And, and this, this is Worthy. Worthy. Home. I'll go home. But I'll think of some way to get him back. After all, tomorrow is another day. Thanks for listening to Worthy, the breakdown of every Best Picture winner from past to present. You can listen to us wherever you get your podcasts. Check us out on Instagram at Worthy Podcast, on Twitter at Worthy Pod, and on Facebook at Worthy Podcast. Any inquiries can be submitted to worthysubmissions at gmail.com. Again, that's worthysubmissions at gmail.com.